The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Sixth London Edition by Charles Darwin. Chapter 7. Miscellaneous Objections to the Theory of Natural Selection. Longevity. Modifications Not Necessarily Simultaneous. Modifications Apparently of No Direct Service. Progressive Development. Characters of Small Functional Importance, the Most Constant. Supposed Incompetence of Natural Selection to Account for the Incipient Stages of Useful Structures. Causes which Interfere with the Acquisition through Natural Selection of Useful Structures. Gradations of Structure with Changed Functions. Widely Different Organs in Members of the Same Class developed from one and the same source, reasons for disbelieving in great and abrupt modifications. I will devote this chapter to the consideration of various miscellaneous objections which have been advanced against my own views, as some of the previous discussions may thus be made clearer. But it would be useless to discuss all of them, as many have been made by writers who have not taken the trouble to understand the subject. Thus a distinguished German naturalist has asserted that the weakest part of my theory is that I consider all organic beings as imperfect. What I have really said is that all are not as perfect as they might have been in relation to their conditions, and this is shown to be the case by so many native forms in many quarters of the world having yielded their places to intruding foreigners. Nor can organic beings, even if they were at any one time perfectly adapted to their conditions of life, have remained so when their conditions changed, unless they themselves likewise changed and no one will dispute that the physical conditions of each country, as well as the number and kinds of its inhabitants, have undergone many mutations. A critic has lately insisted, with some parade of mathematical accuracy, that longevity is a great advantage to all species, so that he who believes in natural selection must arrange his genealogical tree in such a manner that all the descendants have longer lives than their progenitors. Cannot our critics conceive that a biennial plant or one of the lower animals might range into a cold climate and perish there every winter, and yet, owing to advantages gained through natural selection, survive from year to year by means of its seeds or ova? Mr. E. Ray Lancaster has recently discussed this subject, and he concludes, as far as its extreme complexity allows him to form a judgment, that longevity is generally related to the standard of each species in the scale of organization, as well as to the amount of expenditure in reproduction and in general activity. And these conditions have, it is probable, been largely determined through natural selection. It has been argued that, as none of the animals and plants of Egypt, of which we know anything, have changed during the last three or four thousand years, so probably have none in any part of the world. But, as Mr. G. H. Lewis has remarked, this line of argument proves too much, for the ancient domestic races figured on the Egyptian monuments or embalmed are closely similar, or even identical, with those now living 
yet all naturalists admit that such races have been produced through the modification of their original types. The many animals which have remained unchanged since the commencement of the glacial period would have been an incomparably stronger case, for these have been exposed to great changes of climate and have migrated over great distances, whereas in Egypt, during the last several thousand years, the conditions of life, as far as we know, have remained absolutely uniform. The fact of little or no modification having been effected since the glacial period would have been of some avail against those who believe in an innate and necessary law of development, but it is powerless against the doctrine of natural selection, or the survival of the fittest, which implies that when variations or individual differences of a beneficial nature happen to arise, these will be preserved, but this will be effected only under certain favorable circumstances. The celebrated paleontologist Braun, at the close of his German translation of this work, asks how, on the principle of natural selection, can a variety live side by side with the parent species. If both have become fitted for slightly different habitats of life or conditions, they might live together, and if we lay on one side polymorphic species, in which the variability seems to be of a peculiar nature, and all mere temporary variations such as size, albinism, etc., the more permanent varieties are generally found, as far as I can discover, inhabiting distinct stations, such as highland or lowland, dry or moist districts. Moreover, in the case of animals which wander much about and cross freely, their varieties seem to be generally confined to distinct regions. Braun also insists that the distinct species never differ from each other in single characters, but in many parts, and he asks how it always comes that many parts of the organization should have been modified at the same time through variation and natural selection. But there is no necessity for supposing that all the parts of any being have been simultaneously modified. The most striking modifications, excellently adapted for some purpose, might, as was formerly remarked, be acquired by successive variations, if slight, first in one part and then in another, and, as they would be transmitted altogether, they would appear to us as if they had been simultaneously developed. The best answer, however, to the above objection is afforded by those domestic races which have been modified, chiefly through man's power of selection, for some natural purpose. Look at the race and dray horse, or at the greyhound and mastiff. Their whole frames and even their mental characteristics have been modified. But if we could trace each step in the history of their transformation, and the latter steps can be traced, we should not see great and simultaneous changes, but first one part and then another, slightly modified and improved. Even when selection has been applied by man to some one character alone, of which our cultivated plants offer the best instances, it will invariably be found that, although this one part, whether it be flower, fruit, or leaves, has been greatly changed, almost all the other parts have been slightly modified. This may be attributed partly to the principle of correlated growth, and partly to so-called spontaneous variation.
A much more serious objection has been urged by Braun, and recently by Broca, namely that many characters appear to be of no service whatsoever to their possessors, and therefore cannot have been influenced through natural selection. Braun adduces the length of the ears and tails of the different species of hares and mice, the complex folds of enamel in the teeth of many animals, and a multitude of analogous cases. With respect to plants, this subject has been discussed by Nageli in an admirable essay. He admits that natural selection has affected much, but he insists that the families of plants differ chiefly from each other in morphological characters, which appear to be quite unimportant for the welfare of the species. He consequently believes in an innate tendency towards progressive and more perfect development. He specifies the arrangement of the cells in the tissues, and of the leaves on the axis, as cases in which natural selection could not have acted. To these may be added the numerical divisions in the parts of the flower, the position of the alveoles, the shape of the seed, when not of any use for dissemination, etc. There is much force in the above objection. Nevertheless, we ought in the first place to be extremely cautious in pretending to decide what structures now are, or have formerly been, of use to each species. In the second place, it should always be borne in mind that when one part is modified, so will be other parts, though certainly dimly seen causes such as increased or diminished flow of nutriment to a part, mutual pressure, an early developed part affecting one subsequently developed, and so forth, as well as through other causes which lead to the many mysterious cases of correlation, which we do not in the least understand. These agencies may be all grouped together, for the sake of brevity, under the expression of the laws of growth. In the third place, we have to allow for the direct and definite action of changed conditions of life, and for so-called spontaneous variations, in which the nature of the conditions apparently plays quite a subordinate part. Bud variations, such as the appearance of a moss-rose on a common rose, or of a nectarine on a peach-tree, offer good instances of spontaneous variations, but even in these cases, if we bear in mind the power of a minute drop of poison in producing complex galls, we ought not to feel too sure that the above variations are not the effect of some local change in the nature of the sap, due to some change in the conditions. There must be some efficient cause for each slight individual difference, as well as for the more strongly marked variations which occasionally arise and if the unknown cause were to act persistently, it is almost certain that all the individuals of the species would be similarly modified. In the earlier editions of this work I underrated, as it now seems probable, the frequency and importance of modifications due to spontaneous variability. 
but it is impossible to attribute to this cause the innumerable structures which are so well adapted to the habits of life of each species. I can no more believe in this than that the well-adapted form of a racehorse or greyhound, which before the principle of selection by man was well understood, excited so much surprise in the minds of older naturalists, can thus be explained. It may be worth while to illustrate some of the foregoing remarks. With respect to the assumed inutility of various plants and organs, it is hardly necessary to observe that even in the higher and best-known animals many structures exist, which are so highly developed that no one doubts that they are of importance, yet their use has not been, or has only recently been, ascertained. As Braun gives the length of the ears and tail in the several species of mice as instances, though trifling ones, of differences in structure which can be of no special use, I may mention that, according to Dr. Schobel, the external ears of the common mouse are supplied in an extraordinary manner with nerves, so that they no doubt serve as tactile organs. Hence the length of the ears can hardly be quite unimportant. We shall also presently see that the tail is a highly useful prehensile organ to some of the species, and its use would be much influenced by its length. With respect to plants, to which, on account of Negley's essay, I shall confine myself in the following remarks, it will be admitted that the flowers of the orchids present a multitude of curious structures, which a few years ago would have been considered as mere morphological differences without any special function, but are now known to be of the highest importance for the fertilization of the species through the aid of insects, and would probably have been gained through natural selection. No one until lately could have imagined that in dimorphic and trimorphic plants the different lengths of the stamens and pistils, and their arrangement, could have been of any service, but now we know this to be the case. In certain whole groups of plants the ovules stand erect, and in others they are suspended, and within the same ovarium of some few plants one ovule holds the former, and a second ovule the latter position. These positions seem at first purely morphological, or of no physiological signification, but Dr. Hooker informs me that within the same ovarium the upper ovules alone in some cases, and in others the lower ones alone, are fertilized, and he suggests that this probably depends on the direction in which pollen tubes enter the ovarium. If so, the position of the ovules, even when one is erect and the other suspended within the same ovarium, would follow the selection of any slight deviations in position which favored their fertilization and the production of seed. Several plants belonging to distinct orders habitually produce flowers of two kinds, the one open of the ordinary structure, the other closed and imperfect. These two kinds of flowers sometimes differ wonderfully in structure, yet may be seen to graduate into each other on the same plant. The ordinary and open flowers can be intercrossed, and the benefits which certainly are derived from this process are thus secured. 
The closed and imperfect flowers are, however, manifestly of high importance, as they yield with the utmost safety a large stock of seed, with the expenditure of wonderfully little pollen. The two kinds of flowers often differ much, as just stated, in structure. The petals in the imperfect flowers almost always consist of mere rudiments. The pollen grains are reduced in diameter. In Ononis columnae, five of the alternative stamens are rudimentary, and in some species of viola, three stamens are in this state, two retaining their proper function, but being of very small size. In six out of thirty of the closed flowers in an Indian violet, name unknown, for the plants have never produced with me perfect flowers, the sepals are reduced from the normal number of five to three. In one section of the Malfagaceae, the closed flowers, according to A. de Jussieu, are still further modified, for the five stamens which stand opposite to the sepals are all aborted, a sixth stamen standing opposite to a petal being alone developed and this stamen is not present in the ordinary flowers of this species. The style is aborted, and the ovaria are reduced from three to two. Now, although natural selection may well have the power to prevent some of the flowers from expanding, and to reduce the amount of pollen when rendered by the closure of the flowers superfluous, yet hardly any of the above special modifications can have been thus determined, but must have followed from the laws of growth, according to the functional inactivity of parts during the progress of the reduction of the pollen and the closure of the flowers. It is so necessary to appreciate the important effects of the laws of growth that I will give some additional cases of another kind, namely of differences in the same part or organ due to differences in relative position on the same plant. In the Spanish chestnut, and in certain fir trees, the angles of divergence of the leaves differ, according to Schott, in the nearly horizontal and the upright branches. In the common rue, and some other plants, one flower, usually the central or terminal one, opens first, and has five sepals and petals, and five divisions to the ovarium, while all the other flowers on the plant are tetramerous. In the British adoxa, the uppermost flower generally has two calyx lobes, with the other organs tetramerous, while the surrounding flowers generally have three calyx lobes, and the other organs pentamerous. In many compositae and umbifiliae, and some other plants, the circumferential flowers have their corollas much more developed than those of the center, and this seems often connected with the abortion of the reproductive organs. It is a mere curious fact, previously referred to, that the echines, or seeds of the circumference and center, sometimes differ greatly in form, color, and other characters. In Carthamus, and in some other compositae, in the central achines alone are furnished with a pappus, and in the hyrosis the same head yields achines of three different forms. In certain umbelliferae, the exterior seeds, according to Tausch, are orthospermous, and the central one coleospermous, 
and this is a character which was considered by de Candolle to be in other species of the highest systematic importance. Professor Braun mentions a fumariaceous genus, in which the flowers in the lower part of their spike bear oval, ribbed, or one-seeded nutlets, and in the upper part of the spike, lanceolate, two-valved and two-seeded silics. In these several cases, with the exception of the well-developed ray florets, which are of service in making the flowers conspicuous to insects, natural selection cannot, as far as we can judge, have come into play, or only in a quite subordinate manner. All these modifications follow from the relative position and interaction of the parts, and it can hardly be doubted that if all the flowers and leaves on the same plant had been subjected to the same external and internal condition as are the flowers and leaves in certain positions, all would have been modified in the same manner. In numerous other cases we find modifications of structure which are considered by botanists to be generally of a highly important nature, affecting only some of the flowers of the same plant, or occurring on distinct plants which grow together under the same conditions. As these variations seem of no special use to the plants, they cannot have been influenced by natural selection. Of their cause we are quite ignorant, we cannot even attribute them, as in the last class of cases, to any proximate agency, such as relative position. I will give only a few instances. It is so common to observe on the same plant, flowers indifferently tetramerous, pentamerous, etc., that I need not give examples. But as numerical variations are comparatively rare when the parts are few, I may mention that, according to de Candolle, the flowers of Papaver bractetum offer either two sepals with four petals, which is the common type with poppies, or three sepals with six petals. The manner in which the petals are folded on the bud is in most groups of very constant morphological character, but Professor Asa Gray states that with some species of mimulus, the estivation is almost as frequently that of the Renanthidae as of the Antirinidae, to which the latter tribe the genus belongs. August Saint-Hilaire gives the following cases. The genus Xanthaxilon belongs to a division of the Rutaceae with a single ovary, but in some species flowers may be found on the same plant and even in the same panicle with either one or two ovaries. In Helianthium, the capsule has been described as unilocular or trilocular, and in H. mutabile, une lame pluie ou mal large s'attend entre le pericarpe et la placenta. In the flowers of Soparnia officinalis, Dr. Masters has observed instances of both marginal and free central placentation. Lastly, Saint-Hilaire found toward the southern extreme of the range of Gomphia oleiformis, two forms which he did not at first doubt were distinct species, but he subsequently saw them growing on the same bush, and adds, Voilà, donc dans un même individu, des loges et un style qui se rachèchement, tantôt à son axe ventriculé et tantôt à une ginobus. 
We thus see that with most plants many morphological changes may be attributed to the laws of growth and the interaction of parts, independently of natural selection. But with respect to Nageli's doctrine of an innate tendency toward perfection or progressive development, can it be said in the case of these strongly pronounced variations that the plants have been caught in the act of progressing toward a higher state of development? On the contrary, I should infer from the mere fact of the parts in question differing or varying greatly on the same plant, that such modifications were of extremely small importance to the plants themselves, of whatever importance they may generally be to us for our classifications. The acquisition of a useless part can hardly be said to raise an organism in the natural scale, and in the case of the imperfect closed flowers above described, if any new principle has to be invoked it must be one of retrogression rather than of progression, and so it must be with many parasitic and degraded animals. We are ignorant of the exciting cause of the above specified modifications, but if the unknown were to act almost uniformly for a length of time, we may infer that the result would be almost uniform, and in this case all the individuals of the species would be modified in the same manner. From the fact of the above characters being unimportant for the welfare of the species, any slight variations which occurred in them would not have been accumulated and augmented through natural selection. A structure which has been developed through long-continued selection, when it ceases to be of service to a species, generally becomes variable, as we see with rudimentary organs, for it will no longer be regulated by this same power of selection. But when, from the nature of the organism and of the condition, modifications have been induced which are unimportant for the welfare of the species, they may be, and apparently often have been, transmitted in nearly the same state to numerous, otherwise modified descendants. It cannot have been of much importance to the greater number of mammals, birds, or reptiles, whether they were clothed with hair, feathers, or scales, yet hair has been transmitted to almost all mammals, feathers to all birds, and scales to all true reptiles. A structure, whatever it may be, which is common to many allied forms, is ranked by us as of high systematic importance, and consequently is often assumed to be of high vital importance to the species. Thus, as I am inclined to believe, morphological differences which we consider as important, such as the arrangement of the leaves, the divisions of the flower, or of the ovarium, the positions of the ovules, etc., first appeared in many cases as fluctuating variations, which sooner or later became constant through the nature of the organism and of the surrounding conditions, as well as through the intercrossing of distinct individuals, but not through natural selection. For as these morphological characters do not affect the welfare of the species, any slight deviations in them would not have been governed or accumulated through this latter agency. It is a strange result which we thus arrive at, namely that characters of slight vital importance to the species are the most important to the systematist, 
but, as we shall hereinafter see when we treat of the genetic principle of classification, this is by no means so paradoxical as it may at first appear. Although we have no good evidence of the existence in organic beings of an innate tendency towards progressive development, yet this necessarily follows, as I have attempted to show in the fourth chapter, through the continued action of natural selection. For the best definition which has ever been given of a high standard of organization is the degree to which the parts have been specialized or differentiated, and natural selection tends towards this end inasmuch as the parts are thus enabled to perform their functions more efficiently. A distinguished zoologist, Mr. St. George Minvart, has recently collected all the objections which have ever been advanced by myself and others against the theory of natural selection, as propounded by Mr. Wallace and myself, and has illustrated them with admirable art and force. When thus marshaled, they make a formidable array, and it forms no part of Mr. Minbart's plan to give the various facets and considerations opposed to its conclusions. No slight effort of reason and memory is left to the reader, who may wish to weigh the evidence on both sides. When discussing special cases, Mr. Minvart passes over the effects of the increased use and disuse of parts, which I have always maintained to be highly important, and have treated my variation under domestication at greater length than, as I believe, any other writer. He likewise often assumes that I attribute nothing to variation, independently of natural selection, whereas in the work just referred to I have collected a greater number of well-established cases than can be found in any other work known to me. My judgment may not be trustworthy, but after reading with care Mr. Minvart's book, and after comparing each section with what I have said on the same head, I never before felt so strongly convinced of the general truth of the conclusions here arrived at, subject, of course, in so intricate a subject, to much partial error. All Mr. Minvart's objections will be, or have been, considered in the present volume. The one new point which appears to have struck many readers is that natural selection is incompetent to account for the incipient stages of useful structures. This subject is intimately connected with that of the gradation of the characters, often accompanied by a change of function, for instance the conversion of a swim-bladder into lungs, points of which were discussed in the last chapter under two headings. Nevertheless, I will here consider in some detail several of the causes advanced by Mr. Minvart, selecting those which are the most illustrative, as want of space prevents me from considering all. The giraffe, by its lofty structure, much elongated neck, forelegs, head, and tongue, has its whole frame beautifully adapted for browsing on the higher branches of trees. It can thus obtain food beyond the reach of the other ungulata, or hoofed animals, inhabiting the same country, and this must be a great advantage to it during dearths. The Niata cattle in South America show us how a small difference in structure may make during such periods a great difference in preserving an animal's life. These cattle can browse as well as others on grass, 
but from the projection of the lower jaw they cannot, during the often recurrent droughts, browse on the twigs of trees, reeds, etc., to which food the common cattle and horses are often driven, so that at these times the niatas perish, if not well fed by their owners. Before coming to Mr. Minvart's objections, it may be well to explain once again how natural selection will act in all ordinary cases. Man has modified some of his animals without necessarily having attended to special points of structure, but simply preserving and breeding from the fleetest animals, as with the racehorse and the greyhound, or as with the gamecock by breeding from the victorious birds. So under nature, with the nascent giraffe, the individuals which were the highest browsers, and were able during dearths to reach even an inch or two above the others, will often have been preserved, for they will have roamed over the whole country in search of food. That the individuals of the same species often differ slightly in the relative lengths of all their parts, may be seen in many works of natural history, in which careful measurements are given. These slight proportional differences, due to the laws of growth and variation, are not of the slightest use or importance to most species, but it will have been otherwise with the nascent giraffe, considering its probable habits of life, for those individuals which had some one part or several parts of their bodies rather more elongated than usual, would generally have survived. These will have intercrossed and left offspring, either inheriting the same bodily peculiarities, or with a tendency to vary again in the same manner, while the individuals less favored in the same respects will have been the most liable to perish. We see here that there is no need to separate single pairs, as man does when he methodically improves a breed. Natural selection will preserve and thus separate all the superior individuals, allowing them freely to intercross, and will destroy all the inferior individuals. By this process, long continued, which exactly corresponds to what I have called unconscious selection by man, combined no doubt in a more important manner with the inherited effects of the increased use of parts, it seems to me almost certain that an ordinary hoofed quadruped might be converted into a giraffe. To this conclusion Mr. Minvart brings forward two objections. One is that the increased size of the body would obviously require an increased supply of food, and he considers it as very problematical whether the disadvantages thence arising would not, in times of scarcity, more than counterbalance the advantages. But as the giraffe actually does exist in large numbers in Africa, and as some of the largest antelopes in the world, taller than an ox, abound there, why should we doubt that, as far as size is concerned, intermediate gradations could formerly have existed there, subjected as now to severe dearths? Assuredly, the being able to reach, at each stage of increased size, to a supply of food left untouched by other hoofed quadrupeds of the country, would have been of some advantage to the nascent giraffe.
nor must we overlook the fact that increasing bulk would act as little protection against almost all beasts of prey, excepting the lion, and against this animal. Its tall neck, and the taller the better, would, as Mr. Chauncey Wright has remarked, serve as a watchtower. It is from this cause, as Sir S. Baker remarks, that no animal is more difficult to stalk than the giraffe. This animal also uses its long neck as a means of offense or defense, by violently swinging its head around with stump-like horns. The preservation of each species can rarely be determined by any one advantage, but by the union of all, great and small. Mr. Minvard then asks, and this is his second objection, if natural selection be so potent, and if high browsing be so great an advantage, why has not any other hoofed quadruped acquired a long neck and a lofty stature besides the giraffe, and, to a lesser degree, the camel, guanaco, and macrochenia? Or, again, why has not any member of the group acquired a long proboscis? With respect to South Africa, which was formerly inhabited by numerous herds of the giraffe, the answer is not difficult, and can be best given by an illustration. In every meadow in England in which trees grow, we see the lower branches trimmed or planed to an exact level by the browsing of the horses or cattle, and what advantage would it be, for instance, to sheep, if kept there, to acquire slightly longer necks? In every district some kind of animal will almost certainly be able to browse higher than the others, and it is almost equally certain that this one kind alone could have had its neck elongated for this purpose, through natural selection and the effects of increased use. In South America the competition for browsing on the higher branches of the acacias and other trees must be between giraffe and giraffe, and not with the other ungulate animals. Why, in other quarters of the world, various animals belonging to this same order have not acquired either an elongated neck or a proboscis, cannot be distinctly answered. But it is as unreasonable to expect a distinct answer to such a question as why some event in the history of mankind did not occur in one country while it did in another. We are ignorant with respect to the conditions which determine the numbers and range of each species, and we cannot even conjecture what changes of structure would be favorable to its increase in some new country. We can, however, see in a general manner that various causes might have interfered with the development of a long neck or proboscis. To reach the foliage at a considerable height without climbing, for which hoofed animals are singularly ill-constructed, implies greatly increased bulk of body, and we know that some areas support singularly few large quadrupeds, for instance South America, though it is so luxuriant, while South Africa abounds with them to an unparalleled degree. Why this should be, so we do not know nor why the later tertiary periods should have been so much more favorable for their existence than the present time. Whatever the causes may have been, we can see that certain districts and times would have been much more favorable than others for the development of so large a quadruped as the giraffe. 
In order that an animal should acquire some structures specially and largely developed, it is almost indispensable that several other parts should be modified and co-adapted. Although every part of the body varies slightly, it does not follow that the necessary parts should always vary in the right direction and to the right degree. With the different species of our domesticated animals, we know that the parts vary in a different manner and degree, and that some species are more variable than others. Even if the fitting variations did arise, it does not follow that natural selection would be able to act on them and produce a structure which apparently would be beneficial to the species. For instance, if the number of individuals existing in a country is determined chiefly through destruction by beasts of prey, by external or internal parasites, etc., as seems often to be the case, then natural selection will be able to do little, or it will be greatly retarded in modifying any particular structure for obtaining food. Lastly, natural selection is a slow process, and the same favorable conditions must long endure in order that any market effect should thus be produced. Except by assigning such general and vague reasons, we cannot explain why, in many quarters of the world, hoofed quadrupeds have not acquired much elongated necks or other means for browsing on higher branches of trees. Objections of the same nature as the foregoing have been advanced by many writers. In each case, various causes, besides the general ones just indicated, have probably interfered with the acquisition through natural selection of structures, which it is thought would be beneficial to certain species. One writer asks, why has not the ostrich acquired the power of flight? But a moment's reflection will show that an enormous supply of food would be necessary to give this bird of the desert force to move its huge body through the air. Oceanic islands are inhabited by bats and seals, but by no terrestrial mammals. Yet, as some of these bats are peculiar species, they must have long inhabited their present homes. Therefore, Sir C. Lyell asks, and assigns through certain reasons in answer, why have not seals and bats given birth on such islands to forms fitted to live on the land? But seals would necessarily be first converted into terrestrial carnivorous animals of considerable size, and bats into terrestrial insectivorous animals. For the former there would be no prey. For the bats, ground insects would serve as food, but these would already be largely preyed upon by the reptiles or birds, which first colonize and abound on most oceanic islands. Gradations of structure, with each stage beneficial to a changing species, will be favored only under certain peculiar conditions. A strictly terrestrial animal, by occasionally hunting for food in shallow water, than in streams or lakes, might at last be converted into an animal so thoroughly aquatic as to brave the open ocean. But seals would not find on oceanic islands the conditions favorable to their gradual reconversion into a terrestrial form. Bats, as formerly shown, probably acquired their wings by at first gliding through the air from tree to tree, like the so-called flying squirrels, for the sake of escaping from their enemies, or for avoiding falls. 
but when the power of true flight had once been acquired, it would never be reconverted back, at least for the above purposes, into the less efficient power of gliding through the air. Bats might indeed, like many birds, have had their wings greatly reduced in size or completely lost through disuse, but in this case it would be necessary that they should first have acquired the power of running quickly on the ground, by the aid of their hind legs alone, so as to compete with the birds and other ground animals, and for such a change a bat seems singularly ill-fitted. These conjectural remarks have been made merely to show that a transition of structure, with each step beneficial, is a highly complex affair, and there is nothing strange in a transition not having occurred in any particular case. Lately more than one writer has asked why have some animals had their mental powers more highly developed than others, as such development would be advantageous to all. Why have not apes acquired the intellectual powers of man? Various causes could be assigned, but as they are conjectural, and their relative probability cannot be weighed, it would be useless to give them. A definite answer to the latter question ought not to be expected, seeing that one can solve the simpler problem, why of two races of savages has one risen higher in the scale of civilization than the other, and this apparently implies increased brain-power. We will return to Mr. Minvart's other objections. Insects often resemble, for the sake of protection, various objects, such as green or decayed leaves, dead twigs, bits of lichen, flowers, spines, excrement of birds, and living insects. But to this latter point I shall hereafter recur. The resemblance is often wonderfully close and is not confined to color, but extends to form and even to the manner in which the insects hold themselves. The caterpillars, which project motionless like dead twigs from the bushes on which they feed, offer an excellent instance of a resemblance of this kind. The cases of this imitation of such objects as the excrement of birds are rare and exceptional. On this head, Mr. Minvart remarks, as according to Mr. Darwin's theory, there is a constant tendency to indefinite variation, and as the minute incipient variations will be in all directions, they must tend to neutralize each other, and, at first, to form such unstable modifications that it is difficult, if not impossible, to see how such indefinite oscillations of infinitesimal beginnings can ever build up a sufficiently appreciable resemblance to a leaf, bamboo, or other object, for natural selection to seize upon and perpetuate. But in all the foregoing cases the insects in their original state no doubt presented some rude and accidental resemblance to an object commonly found in the stations frequented by them. Nor is this at all improbable, considering the almost infinite number of surrounding objects, and the diversity in form and color of the hosts of insects which exist. As some rude resemblance is necessary for the first start, we can understand how it is that the larger and higher animals do not, with the exception, as far as I know, of one fish, resemble, for the sake of protection, special objects, but only the surface which commonly surrounds them, and this chiefly in color. 
Assuming that an insect originally happened to resemble in some degree a dead twig or decayed leaf, and that it varied slightly in many ways, then all the variations which rendered the insect at all more like any such object, and thus favored its escape, would be preserved, while other variations would be neglected and ultimately lost, or, if they rendered the insect at all less like the imitated object, they would be eliminated. There would indeed be force in Mr. Minvart's objection if we were to attempt to account for the above resemblances independently of natural selection through mere fluctuating variability, but as the case stands, there is none. Nor can I see any force in Mr. Minvart's difficulty with respect to the last touches of perfection in the mimicry as is the case given by Mr. Wallace, of a walking-stick insect, Ceroxylus nutzerus, which resembles a stick grown over by a creeping moss, or Jungermania. So close was this resemblance that a native dyak maintained that the foliaceous excrescences were really moss. Insects are preyed upon by birds and other enemies, whose sight is probably sharper than ours, and every grade in resemblance which added an insect to escape notice or detection would tend toward its preservation, and the more perfect the resemblance, so much the better for the insect. Considering the nature of the differences between the species in the group which includes the above Cerasylus, there is nothing improbable in this insect having varied in the irregularities on its surface, and in these having become more or less green-colored, for in every group the characters which differ in the several species are the most apt to vary, while the genetic characters, or those common to all the species, are the most constant. The Greenland whale is one of the most wonderful animals in the world, and the baleen, or whalebone, one of its greatest peculiarities. The baleen consists of a row on each side of the upper jaw of about three hundred plates, or laminae, which would stand close together transversely to the longer axis of the mouth. Within the main row there are some subsidiary rows. The extremities and inner margins of all the plates are frayed into stiff bristles, which clothe the whole gigantic palate, and serve to strain or sift the water, and thus to secure the minute prey on which these great animals subsist. The middle and longest lamina in the Greenland whale is ten, twelve, or even fifteen feet in length, but in the different species of cetaceans there are gradations in length the middle lamina being in one species, according to Scoresby, four feet, in another three, in another eighteen inches, and in the Balanoptera rostara only about nine inches in length. The quality of the whalebone also differs in the different species. With respect to the baleen, Mr. Minvert remarks that if it had once attained such a size and development as to be at all useful, then its preservation and augmentation within serviceable limits would be promoted by natural selection alone. But how to obtain the beginning of such a useful development? In answer, it may be asked, why should not the early progenitors of the whales with baleen have possessed a mouth constructed something like the lamellated beak of a duck? Ducks, like whales, subsist by sifting the mud and water, and the family has sometimes been called 
quibblators or sifters. I hope that I may not be misconstrued into saying that the progenitors of whales did actually possess mouths laminated like the beak of a duck. I wish only to show that this is not incredible, and that the immense plates of baleen in the Greenland whale might have been developed from such lamellae by finely graduated steps, each of service to its possessor. The beak of a shoveler duck, Spatula clypeta, is a more beautiful and complex structure than the mouth of a whale. The upper mandible is furnished on one side, in the specimen examined by me, with a row or comb formed of 188 thin elastic lamellae, obliquely beveled so as to be pointed and placed transversely to the longer axis of the mouth. They arise from the palate, and are attached by a flexible membrane to the sides of the mandible. Those standing toward the middle are the longest, being about one-third of an inch in length, and they project fourteen one-hundredths of an inch beneath the edge. At their bases there is a short subsidiary row of obliquely transverse lamellae. In these several respects they resemble the plates of baleen in the mouth of a whale, but towards the extremity of the beak they differ much, as they project inward instead of straight downward. The entire head of the shoveler, though incomparably less bulky, is about one-eighteenth the length of the head of a moderately large Balaenoptera rostora, in which species the baleen is only nine inches long. So that if we were to make the head of the shoveler as long as that of the Balaenoptera, the laminae would be six inches in length, that is, two-thirds the length of the baleen in this species of whale. The lower mandible of the shoveler duck is furnished with laminae of equal length with those above, but finer, and in being thus furnished it differs conspicuously from the lower jaw of a whale, which is destitute of baleen. On the other hand, the extremities of these lower lamellae are frayed into fine bristly points, so that they thus curiously resemble the plates of baleen. In the genus Prion, a member of the distinct family of the petrels, the upper mandible alone is furnished with lamellae, which are well developed and project beneath the margins, so that the beak of this bird resembles in this respect the mouth of a whale. From the highly developed structure of the shoveler's beak we may proceed, as I have learned from information and specimens sent to me by Mr. Salvin, without any great break as far as fitness for sifting is concerned, through the beak of Meriganta armata, and in some respects through that of the Aix sponsa, to the beak of the common duck. In this latter species the lamellae are much coarser than in the shoveler, and are firmly attached to the sides of the mandible. They are only about fifty in number on each side, and do not project at all beneath the margin. They are square-tipped, and are edged with translucent, hardish tissue, as if for crushing food. The edges of the lower mandible are crossed by numerous fine ridges, which project very little. Although the beak is thus very inferior as a sifter to that of the shoveler, yet this bird, as every one knows, constantly uses it for that purpose. There are other species, as I heard from Mr. Salvin, in which the lamellae are considerably less developed than in the common duck, but I do not know whether they use their beaks for sifting the water. Turning to another group in the same family, in the Egyptian goose, 
Chenolopex, the beak closely resembles that of the modern duck, but the lamellae are not so numerous, nor so distinct from each other, nor do they project so much inward. Yet this goose, as I am informed by Mr. E. Bartlett, uses its bill like a duck by throwing the water out at the corners. Its chief food, however, is grass, which it crops like the common goose. In this latter bird the lamellae of the upper mandible are much coarser than in the common duck, almost confluent, about twenty-seven in number on each side, and terminating upward in teeth-like knobs. The palate is also covered with hard rounded knobs. The edges of the lower mandible are serrated with teeth much more prominent, coarser, and sharper than in the duck. The common goose does not sift the water, but uses its beak exclusively for tearing or cutting herbage, for which purpose it is so well fitted that it can crop grass closer than almost any other animal. There are other species of geese, as I hear from Mr. Bartlett, in which the lamellae are less developed than in the common goose. We thus see that a member of the duck family, with a beak constructed like that of a common goose and adapted solely for grazing, or even a member with a beak having less well-developed lamellae, might be converted by small changes into a species like the Egyptian goose, this into one like the common duck, and lastly into one like the shoveler, provided with a beak almost exclusively adapted for sifting the water for this bird would hardly use any part of its beak except the hooked tip for seizing or tearing solid food. The beak of a goose, as I may add, might also be converted by small changes into one provided with prominent recurved teeth, like those of the merganser, a member of the same family, serving for the widely different purpose of securing live fish. Returning to the whales, Hyperodon bidens is destitute of true teeth in an efficient condition, but its palate is roughened, according to Lacipidae, with small, unequal, hard points of horn. There is therefore nothing improbable in supposing that some early cetacean form was provided with similar points of horn on the palate, but rather more regularly placed, and which, like the knobs on the beak of the goose, aided it in seizing or tearing its food. If so, it will hardly be denied that the points might have been converted through variation and natural selection into lamellae, as well developed as that of the Egyptian goose, in which case they would have been used both for seizing objects and for sifting the water then into lamellae like those of the domestic duck, and so onward until they became as well constructed as those of the shoveler, in which case they would have served exclusively as a sifting apparatus. From this stage, in which the lamellae would be two-thirds the length of the plates of baleen in the Balaenoptera rostara, gradations, which may be observed in still-existing cetaceans, lead us onward to the enormous plates of baleen in the Greenland whale. Nor is there the least reason to doubt that each step in this scale might have been as serviceable to certain ancient cetaceans, with the functions of the parts slowly changing during the progress of development, as are the gradations in the beaks of the differing existing members of the duck family. 
we should bear in mind that each species of duck is subjected to a severe struggle for existence, and that the structure of every part of its frame must be well adapted to its conditions of life. The Pleuronecidae, or flatfish, are remarkable for their asymmetrical bodies. They rest on one side, in the greater number of species on the left, but in some on the right side, and occasionally reversed adult specimens occur. The lower, or resting surface, resembles, at first sight, the ventral surface of an ordinary fish. It is of white color, less developed in many ways than on the upper side, with the lateral fins often of smaller size. But the eyes offer the most remarkable peculiarity, for they are both placed on the upper side of the head. During early youth, however, they stand opposite to each other, and the whole body is then symmetrical, with both sides equally colored. Soon the eye proper to the lower side begins to glide slowly round the head to the upper side, but does not pass right through the skull, as was formerly thought to be the case. It is obvious that unless the lower eye did this travel round, it could not be used by the fish while lying in its habitual position on one side. The lower eye would also have been liable to be abraded by the sandy bottom that the Pleuronecidae are remarkably adapted by their flattened and asymmetrical structure for their habits of life, is manifest from several species, such as soles, flounder, etc., being excessively common. The chief advantages thus gained seem to be protection from their enemies, and facility for feeding on the ground. The different members, however, of the family present, as Schiote remarks, a long series of forms exhibiting a gradual transition from Hippoglossus pingius, which does not in any considerable degree alter the shape in which it leaves the ovum, to the soles, which are entirely thrown off to one side. Mr. Minvart has taken up this case, and remarks that a sudden, spontaneous transformation in the position of the eyes is hardly conceivable, in which I quite agree with him. He then adds, if the transit were gradual, then how such transit of one eye of a minute fraction of the journey toward the other side of the head could benefit the individual is indeed far from clear. It seems even that such an incipient transformation must rather have been injurious. But he might have found an answer to his objection in the excellent observations published in 1867 by Malm. The Pleuronecidae, while very young and still symmetrical, with their eyes standing on opposite sides of the head, cannot long retain a vertical position, owing to the excessive depth of their bodies, the small size of their lateral fins, and to their being destitute of a swim-bladder. Hence, soon growing tired, they fall to the bottom on one side. While thus at rest, they often twist, as Mom observed, the lower eye upward, to see above them, and they do so so vigorously that the eye is pressed hard against the upper part of the orbit. The forehead between the eyes consequently becomes, as could plainly be seen, temporarily contracted in breadth. On one occasion Mom saw a young fish raise and depress the lower eye through an angular distance of about seventy degrees. 
We should remember that the skull at this early age is cartilaginous and flexible, and so it readily yields to muscular action. It is also known with the higher animals, even after early youth, that the skull yields and is altered in shape if the skin or muscles be permanently contracted through diseases or some accident. With long-eared rabbits, if one ear flops forward and downward, its weight drags forward all the bones of the skull on the same side, of which I have given a figure. Malm states that the newly hatched young of perches, salmon, and several other symmetrical fishes have the habit of occasionally resting on one side at the bottom, and he has observed that they often then strain their lower eyes so as to look upward, and their skulls are thus rendered rather crooked. These fishes, however, are soon able to hold themselves in a vertical position, and no permanent effect is thus produced. With the Pleuricidae, on the other hand, the older they grow, the more habitually they rest on one side, owing to the increasing flatness of their bodies, and a permanent effect is thus produced at the form of the head, and on the position of the eyes. Judging from analogy, the tendency to distortion would no doubt be increased through the principle of inheritance. Schiote believes, in opposition to some other naturalists, that the Pleuronicidae are not quite symmetrical even in the embryo, and if this be so, we could understand how it is that certain species, while young, habitually fall over and rest on the left side, and other species on the right side. Malm adds, in confirmation of the above view, that the adult Trachypterus arcturus, which is not a member of the Pleuronicidae, rests on the left side at the bottom, and swims diagonally through the water, and this fish, of the two sides of its head, are said to be somewhat dissimilar. Our great authority on fishes, Dr. Gunther, concludes his abstract of Malm's paper by remarking that the author gives a very simple explanation of the abnormal condition of the pleurocentinoids. We thus see that the first stages of the transit of the eye from one side of the head to the other, which Mr. Minvart considers would be injurious, may be attributed to the habit, no doubt beneficial to the individual and to the species, of endeavouring to look upward with both eyes, while resting on one side at the bottom. We may also attribute to the inherited effects of use the fact of the mouth in several kinds of flatfish being bent toward the lower surface, with the jawbones stronger and more effective on this, the eyeless side of the head, than on the other, for the sake, as Dr. Tronquayar supposes, of feeding with ease on the ground. Disuse, on the other hand, will account for less developed conditions of the whole inferior half of the body, including the lateral fins, though Yarrell thinks that the reduced size of these fins is advantageous to the fish, as there is so much less room for the action than with the larger fins above. Perhaps the lesser number of teeth in the proportion of four to seven in the upper halves of the two jaws of the pliasae to twenty-five to thirty in the lower halves may likewise be accounted for by disuse. From the colorless state of the ventral surface of many fishes, and from many other animals, we may reasonably suppose that the absence of color in flatfish on the side 
whether it be right or left, which is undermost, is due to the exclusion of light. But it cannot be supposed that the peculiar speckled appearance of the upper side of the soul is so like the sandy bed of the sea, or the power in some species, as recently shown by Pouchet, of changing their color in accordance with the surrounding surface, or the presence of bony tubercles in the upper side of the turbo, are due to the action of the light. Here natural selection has probably come into play, as well as in adapting the general shape of the body of these fishes, and many other peculiarities to their habits of life. We should keep in mind, as I have before insisted, that the inherited effects of the increased use of parts, and perhaps of their disuse, will be strengthened by natural selection. For all spontaneous variations in the right direction will be thus preserved, as will those individuals which inherit in the highest degree the effects of the increased beneficial use of any part. How much to attribute in each particular case to the effects of use, and how much to natural selection, it seems impossible to decide. I may give another instance of a structure which apparently owes its origin exclusively to use or habit. The extremity of the tail in some American monkeys has been converted into a wonderfully perfect prehensile organ, and serves as a fifth hand. A reviewer, who agrees with Mr. Minvart in every detail, remarks on this structure. It is impossible to believe that in any number of ages the first slight incipient tendency to grasp could preserve the lives of the individuals possessing it, or favor their chance of having and of rearing offspring. But there is no necessity for any such belief. Habit, and this almost implies that some benefit of great or small is thus derived, would in all probability suffice for the work. Brehm saw the young of an African monkey, Cersopithecus, clinging to the under-surface of their mother by their hands, and at the same time they hooked their little tails round that of their mother. Professor Henslow kept in confinement some harvest mice, Mus Messorius, which do not possess a structurally prehensive tail, but he frequently observed that they curled their tails round the branches of a bush placed in the cage, and thus aided themselves in climbing. I have received an analogous account from Dr. Gunther, who has seen a mouse thus suspend itself. If the harvest mouse had been more strictly arboreal, it would perhaps have had its tail rendered structurally prehensile, as is the case with some members of the same order. Why Cersopithecus, considering its habits while young, has not become thus provided, it would be difficult to say. It is, however, possible that the long tail of this monkey may be more of service to it as a balancing organ in making its prodigious leaps than as a prehensile organ. The mammary glands are common to the whole class of mammals, and are indispensable for their existence. They must, therefore, have been developed at an extremely remote period, and we can know nothing positively about their manner of development. Mr. Minvard asks, Is it conceivable that the young of any animal was ever saved from destruction by accidentally sucking a drop of scarcely nutritious fluid 
from an accidentally hypertrophied cutaceous gland of its mother. And even if one were so, what chance was there of the perpetuation of such a variation? But the case is not here put fairly. It is admitted by most evolutionists that mammals are descended from a marsupial form, and if so, the mammary glands will have at first developed within the marsupial sac. In the case of fish, hippocampus, the eggs are hatched, and the young are reared for a time within a sac of this nature, and an American naturalist, Mr. Lockwood, believes from what he has seen of the development of the young that they are nourished by a secretion from the cutaneous glands of the sac. Now, with the early progenitors of mammals, almost before they deserve to be thus designated, is it not at least possible that the young might have been similarly nourished? And in this case, the individuals which secreted a fluid in some degree or manner the most nutritious, so as to partake of the nature of milk, would in the long run have reared a larger number of well-nourished offspring than would the individuals which secreted a poorer fluid, and thus the cutaneous glands, which are the homologues of the mammary glands, would have been improved or rendered more effective. It accords with the widely extended principle of specialization that the glands over a certain space of the sac should have become more highly developed than the remainder, and that they would then have formed a breast, but at first without a nipple, as we see in the ornithorhynchus at the base of the mammalian series. Through what agency the glands over a certain space become more highly specialized than the others, I will not pretend to decide whether in part through compensation of growth, the effects of youth, or natural selection. The development of the mammary glands would have been of no service, and could not have been affected through natural selection, unless the young at the same time were able to partake of the secretion. There is no greater difficulty in understanding how young mammals have instinctively learned to suck the breast, than in understanding how unhatched chickens have learned to break the eggshell by tapping against it with their specially adapted beaks, or how a few hours after leaving the shell they have learned to pick up grains of food. In such cases the most probable solution seems to be that the habit was at first acquired by practice at a more advanced age, and afterwards transmitted to the offspring at an earlier age. But the young kangaroo is said not to suck, only to cling to the nipple of its mother, who has the power of injecting milk into the mouth of her helpless half-formed offspring. On this head, Mr. Minvart remarks, did no special provision exist? The young one must infallibly be choked up by the intrusion of the milk into the windpipe? But there is a special provision. The larynx is so elongated that it arises up into the posterior end of the nasal passage, and is thus enabled to give free entrance to the air for the lungs, while the milk passes harmlessly on each side of this elongated larynx, and so safely attains the gullet behind it. Mr. Minvard then asks how did natural selection remove in the adult kangaroo, and in most other mammals on the assumption that they are descended from a marsupial form, this at least perfectly innocent and harmless structure. 
It may be suggested in answer that the voice, which is certainly of high importance to many mammals, could hardly have been used with full force as long as the larynx entered the nasal passage. And Professor Flower has suggested to me that this structure would have greatly interfered with an animal swallowing solid food. We will now turn for a short space to the lower divisions of the animal kingdom. The echinodermata, starfishes, sea urchins, etc., are furnished with remarkable organs called pedicellariae, which consist, when well developed, of a tridactyl forceps, that is, of one formed of three serrated arms, neatly fitting together and placed on the summit of a flexible stem moved by muscles. These forceps can seize and firmly hold of any object, and Alexander Agassiz has seen an echinus or sea urchin rapidly passing particles of excrement from forceps to forceps down certain lines of its body, in order that its shell should not be fouled. But there is no doubt that, besides removing dirt of all kinds, they subserve other functions, and one of these, apparently, is defense. With respect to these organs, Mr. Minvart, as on so many previous occasions, asks, what would be the utility of the first rudimentary beginnings of such structures, and how could such incipient buddings ever have preserved the life of a single echinus? He adds, not even the sudden development of the snapping action would have been beneficial without the freely movable stalk nor could the latter have been efficient without the snapping jaws. Yet no minute, nearly indefinite variations could have simultaneously evolved these complex coordinations of structure. To deny this seems to do no less than to affirm a startling paradox. Paradoxical as this may appear to Mr. Minvart, tridactyl forcepses, immovably fixed at the base but capable of a snapping action, certainly do exist on some starfishes, and this is intelligible if they serve, at least in part, as a means of defense. Mr. Agassiz, to whose great kindness I am indebted for much information on the subject, informs me that there are other starfishes in which one of the three arms of the forceps is reduced to a support for the other two, and again other genera in which the third arm is completely lost. In Echinosis, the shell is described by M. Perrier as bearing two kinds of pedicularii, one resembling that of Echinus, and the other those of Spatangus and in such cases are always interesting as affording the means of apparently sudden transitions through the abortion of one of the two states of an organ. With respect to the steps by which these curious organs have evolved, Mr. Agassiz infers from his own researches and those of Mr. Mueller that both in starfishes and sea urchins the pedicillary have undoubtedly been looked at as modified spines. This must be inferred from their manner of development in the individual, as well as from a long and perfect series of gradations in different species and genera, from simple granules to ordinary spines to perfect tridactyl pedicillary. This gradation extends even to the manner in which ordinary spines and the pedicillary, with their supporting calcareous rods, are articulated to the shell. 
In certain genera of starfishes, the very combinations needed to show that the particularly are only modified branching spines may be found. Thus we have fixed spines with three equidistant, serrated, movable branches articulated to near their bases, and higher up on the same spine three other movable branches. Now when the latter arise from the summit of a spine, they form in fact a rude tridactyl pedicillary, and as such may be seen on the same spine together with the three lower branches. In this case, the identity in nature between the arms of the pedicillary and the movable branches of a spine is unmistakable. It is generally admitted that the ordinary spines serve as a protection, and if so, there can be no reason to doubt that those furnished with serrated and movable branches likewise serve for the same purpose, and they would thus serve still more effectively as soon as by meeting together they acted as a prehensile or snapping apparatus. Thus every gradation, from an ordinary fixed spine to a fixed pedicillary, would be of service. In certain genera of starfishes, these organs, instead of being fixed or borne on an immovable support, are placed at the summit of a flexible and muscular, though short, stem, and in this case they probably subserve some additional function besides defense. In the sea urchins, the steps can be followed by which a fixed spine becomes articulated to the shell, and is thus rendered movable. I wish I had space here to give a fuller abstract of Mr. Agassiz's interesting observations on the development of the pedicillary. All possible gradations, as he adds, may likewise be found between the pedicillary of the starfishes and the hooks of the ophiularians, another group of the echinodermata, and again between the pedicillary of sea urchins and the anchors of the holothere, also belonging to the same great class. Certain compound animals, or zoophytes as they have been termed, namely the polyzoa, are provided with curious organs called avicularia. These differ much in structure in the different species. In their most perfect condition they curiously resemble the head and beak of a vulture in miniature, seated on the neck and capable of movement, as is likewise the lower jaw or mandible. In one species observed by me, all the avicularia on the same branch often moved simultaneously backwards and forwards, with the lower jaw widely open, through an angle of about ninety degrees, in the course of five seconds, and their movement caused the whole polyzoary to tremble. When the jaws are touched with a needle, they seize it so firmly that the branch can thus be shaken. Mr. Minvar deduces this case, chiefly on account of the supposed difficulty of organs, namely the avicularia of the polyzoa and the pedicillary of the echinodermata, which he considers as essentially similar, having been developed through natural selection in widely distinct divisions of the animal kingdom. But as far as the structure is concerned, I can see no similarity between tridactyle pedicillary and avicularia. 
the latter resembles somewhat more closely the chelae or pincers of crustaceans, and Mr. Minvard might have adduced with equal appropriateness this resemblance as a special difficulty, or even their resemblance to the head and beak of a bird. The avicularia are believed by Mr. Busk, Dr. Smith, and Dr. Nietzsche, naturalists who have carefully studied this group, to be homologous with the zooids and their cells which composite the zoophyte. The movable lip or lid of the cell corresponding with the lower and movable mandible of the avicularium. Mr. Busk, however, does not know of any gradations now existing between a zooid and an avicularium. It is therefore impossible to conjecture by what serviceable gradations the one could have been converted into the other, but it by no means follows from this that such gradations have not existed. As the chelae of crustaceans resemble in some degree the avicularia of polyzoa, both serving as pincers, it may be worth while to show that with the former a long series of serviceable gradations still exists. In the first and simplest stage, the terminal segment of the limb shuts down either on the square summit of the broad penultimate segment, or against the whole side, and is thus enabled to catch hold of an object. But the limb still serves as an organ of locomotion. We next find one corner of the broad penultimate segment slightly prominent, sometimes furnished with irregular teeth, and against these the terminal segment shuts down. But an increase in the size of this projection, with its shape as well as that of the terminal segment slightly modified and improved, the pincers are rendered more and more perfect, until at last we have an instrument as efficient as the chelae of a lobster and all these gradations can actually be traced. Besides the avicularia, the polyzoa possess curious organs called vibracula. These generally consist of long bristles, capable of movement and easily excited. In one species examined by me, the vibracula were slightly curved and serrated along the outer margin, and all of them on the same polyzoary often moved simultaneously, so that, acting like long oars, they swept a branch rapidly across the object glass of my microscope. When a branch was placed on the face, the vibracula became entangled, and they made violent efforts to free themselves. They are supposed to serve as a defense, and may be seen, as Mr. Busk remarks, to sweep slowly and carefully over the surface of the polyzoary removing what might be noxious to the delicate inhabitants of the cells when their tentacula are protruded. The avicularia, like the vibracula, probably serve for defense, but they also catch and kill small living animals, which it is believed are afterwards swept by the currents within the reach of the tentacula of the zooids. Some species are provided with avicularia and vibracula, some with avicularia alone, and a few with vibracula alone. It is not easy to imagine two objects more widely different in appearance than a bristle or vibraculum and an avicularium like the head of a bird, yet they are almost certainly homologous, and have been developed from the same common source, namely a zooid with its cell. 
Hence we can understand how it is that these organs gradate in some cases, as I am informed by Mr. Busk, into each other. Thus, with the avicularia of some species of lepralia, the movable mandible is so much produced, and is so like that of a bristle, that the presence of the upper or fixed beak alone serves to determine its avicularian nature. The vibracula may have been directly developed from the lips of the cells, without having passed through the avicularian stage, but it seems more probable that they have passed through this stage, as during the early stages of the transformation the other parts of the cell, with the included zooid, could hardly have disappeared at once. In many cases the vibracula have a grooved support at the base, which seems to represent the fixed beak, though this support in some species is quite absent. This view of the development of the vibracula, if trustworthy, is interesting, for supposing that all the species provided with avicularia had become extinct, no one with the most vivid imagination would ever have thought that the vibracula had originally existed as a part of an organ resembling a bird's head, or an irregular box or hood. It is interesting to see two such widely different organs developed from a common origin, and as the movable lip of the cell serves as a protection of the zooid, there is no difficulty in believing that all the gradations, by which the lip became converted first into the lower mandible of an avicularium, and then into an elongated bristle, likewise served as a protection in different ways and under different circumstances. In the vegetable kingdom, Mr. Minvart only alludes to two cases, namely the structure of the flowers of orchids and the movements of climbing plants. With respect to the former, he says, the explanation of their origin is deemed thoroughly unsatisfactory, utterly insufficient to explain the incipient, infinitesimal beginnings of structures which are of utility only when they are considerably developed. As I have fully treated this subject in another work, I will here give only a few details, on one alone of the most striking peculiarities of the flowers of orchids, namely their pollinia. A pollinum, when highly developed, consists of a mass of pollen grains affixed to an elastic footstalk or caudicle, and this to a little mass of extremely viscid matter. The pollinia are by this means transported by insects from one flower to the stigma of another. In some orchids there is no caudicle to the pollen masses, and the grains are merely tied together by fine threads but as these are not confined to orchids, they need not here be considered. Yet I may mention that at the base of the Orcanidus series, in Cyberspatium, we can see how the threads were probably first developed. In other orchids the threads cohere at one end of the pollen masses, and this forms the first or nascent trace of a claudicle. This is the origin of the claudicle, even when of considerable length and highly developed, we have good evidence in the aborted pollen grains which can sometimes be detected embedded within the central and solid parts. 
With respect to the second chief peculiarity, namely the little mass of viscid matter attached to the end of the claudicle, a long series of gradations can be specified, each of plain service to the plant. In most flowers belonging to other orders, the stigma secretes a little viscid matter. Now, in certain orchids, similar viscid matter is secreted, but in much larger quantities by one alone of the three stigmas, and this stigma, perhaps in consequence of the copious secretion, is rendered sterile. When an insect visits a flower of this kind, it rubs off some of the viscid matter, and thus at the same time drags away some of the pollen grains. From this simple condition, which differs but little from that of a multitude of common flowers, there are endless gradations, to species in which the pollen mass terminates in a very short free claudicle, to others in which the claudicle becomes firmly attached to the visit matter, which the sterile stigmata itself much modified. In this latter case, we have a pollinium in its most highly developed and perfect condition. He who will carefully examine the flowers of orchids for himself will not deny the existence of the above series of gradations, from a mass of pollen grains merely tied together by threads, with the stigmata differing but little from that of the ordinary flowers, to a highly complex pollinium, admirably adapted for transportal by insects. Nor will he deny that all the gradations in the several species are admirably adapted in relation to the general structure of each flower for its fertilization by different insects. In this, and almost every other case, the inquiry must be pushed further backwards, and it must be asked, how did the stigma of an ordinary flower become viscid? But, as we do not know the full history of any one group of beings, it is as useless to ask as it is hopeless to attempt answering such questions. We will now turn to climbing plants. These can be arranged in a long series, from those which simply twine round the support, to those which I have called leaf-climbers, and to those provided with tendrils. In these two latter cases the stems have generally, but not always, lost the power of twining, though they retain the power of revolving, which the tendrils likewise possess. The gradations from leaf-climbers to tendril-bearers are wonderfully close, and certain plants may be differently placed in either class. But in ascending the series from simple twiners to leaf-climbers, an important quality is added, namely sensitiveness to a touch, by means of the footstalks of the leaves of the flowers, or these modified and converted into tendrils are excited to bend round and clasp the touching object. He who will read my memoir on these plants will, I think, admit that all the gradations in function and structure between simple twiners and tendril-bearers are in each case beneficial in a high degree to the species. For instance, it is clearly a great advantage to a twining plant to become a leaf-climber, and it is probable that every twiner which possessed leaves with long footstalks would have been developed into a leaf-climber, if the footstalks had possessed in any slight degree the requisite sensitiveness to a touch. 
as twining is the simplest means of ascending a support, and forms the basis of our series, it may naturally be asked, how did plants acquire this power in an incipient degree, afterwards to be improved and increased through natural selection? The power of twining depends, firstly, on the stems, while young being extremely flexible, but this is a character common to many plants which are not climbers, and secondly, on their continually bending to all points of the compass, one after another in succession in the same order. By this movement, the stems are inclined to all sides and are made to move round and round. As soon as the lower part of a stem strikes against any object and is stopped, the upper part still goes on bending and revolving, and thus necessarily twines round and up the support. The revolving movement ceases after the early growth of each shoot, as in many widely separated families of plants, single species and single genera possess the power of revolving, and have thus become twiners. They must have independently acquired it, and cannot have inherited it from a common progenitor. Hence I was led to predict that some slight tendency to a movement of this kind would be found to be far from uncommon with plants which did not climb, and that this had afforded the basis for natural selection to work on and improve. When I made this prediction, I knew of only one imperfect case, namely of the young flower pendicles of a morianda, which revolved slightly and irregularly, like the stems of twining plants, but without making any use of this habit. Soon afterwards, Fritz Muller discovered that the young stems of alisma and of alinum, plants which do not climb and are widely separated in the natural system, revolved plainly, though irregularly, and he states that he has reason to suspect that this occurs with some other plants. These slight movements appear to be of no service to the plants in question. Anyhow, they are not of the least use in the way of climbing, which is the point that concerns us. Nevertheless, we can see that if the stems of these plants had been flexible, and if under the conditions to which they are exposed it had profited them to ascend to a height, then the habit of unsightly and irregularly revolving might have been increased and utilized through natural selection until they had become converted into well-developed twining species. With respect to the sensitiveness of the footstalks of the leaves and flowers and of the tendrils, nearly the same remarks are applicable as in the case of the revolving movements of twining plants. As a vast number of species belonging to widely distinct groups are endowed with this kind of sensitiveness, it ought to be found in a nascent condition in many plants which have not become climbers. This is the case. I observed that the young flower pentacles of the above morandia curved themselves a little towards the side which was touched. Morin found in several species of oxalis that the leaves and their footstalks moved, especially after exposure to a hot sun, when they were gently and repeatedly touched, or when the plant was shaken. 
I repeated these observations on some other species of oxalis with the same result. In some of them the movement was distinct, but was best seen in the young leaves. In others it was extremely slight. But it is a more important fact that, according to the high authority of Hofmeister, the young shoots and leaves of all plants move after being shaken, and with climbing plants it is, as we know, only during the early stages of growth that the footstalks and tendrils are sensitive. It is scarcely possible that the above slight movements, due to a touch or shake in the young and growing organs of plants, can be of any functional importance to them. But plants possess, in obedience to various stimuli, powers of movement which are of manifest importance to them. For instance, towards, and more rarely from, the light, in opposition to, and more rarely in the direction of, the attraction of gravity, when the nerves and muscles of an animal are excited by galvanism, or by the absorption of strychnine, the consequent movements may be called an incidental result, for the nerves and muscles have not been rendered specially sensitive to these stimuli. So, with plants, it appears that, from having the power of movement in obedience to certain stimuli, they are excited in an incidental manner by a touch or by being shaken. Hence, there is no great difficulty in admitting that, in the case of leaf-climbers and tendril-bearers, it is this tendency which has been taken advantage of and increased through natural selection. It is, however, probable, from reasons which I have assigned in my memoir, that this will have occurred only with plants which had already acquired the power of revolving, and had thus become twiners. I have already endeavoured to explain how plants become twiners, namely by the increase of a tendency to slight and irregular revolving movements, which were at first of no use to them. This movement, as well as that due to a touch or a shake being the incidental result of the power of moving, gained for other and beneficial purposes. Whether, during the gradual development of climbing plants, natural selection has been aided by the inherent effects of use, I will not pretend to decide. But we know that certain periodical movements, for instance the so-called sleep of plants, are governed by habit. I have now considered enough, perhaps more than enough, of the cases selected with care by a skilful naturalist to prove that natural selection is incompetent to account for the incipient changes of useful structures, and I have shown, as I hope, that there is no great difficulty on this head. A good opportunity has thus been afforded for enlarging a little on gradations of structure, often associated with strange functions, an important subject which was not treated at sufficient length in former editions of this work. I will now briefly recapitulate the foregoing cases. With the giraffe, the continued preservation of the individuals of some extinct high-reaching ruminant, which had the longest necks, legs, etc., and could browse a little above the average height, and the continued destruction of those who could not browse so high, would have sufficed for the production of this remarkable quadruped. But the prolonged use of all the parts, together with inheritance, will have aided in an important manner in their coordination. 
With the many insects which imitate various objects, there is no improbability in the belief that an accidental resemblance to some common object was in each case the foundation for the preservation of slight variations which made the resemblance at all closer, and this will have been carried on as long as the insect continued to vary, and as long as a more and more perfect resemblance led to its escape from sharp-sighted enemies. In certain species of whales there is a tendency to the formation of irregular little points of horn on the palate, and it seems to be quite within the scope of natural selection to preserve all favorable variations, until the points were converted first into lamellated knobs or teeth, like those on the beak of a goose, then into short lamellae, like those of the domestic ducks, and then into lamellae as perfect as those of the shoveler duck and finally into the gigantic plates of baleen, as in the mouth of the Greenland whale. In the family of these ducks, the lamellae are first used as teeth, then partly as teeth, then partly as a sifting apparatus, and at last almost exclusively for this latter purpose. With such structures as the above lamellae of horn or whalebone, habit or use can have done little or nothing, as far as we can judge, toward their development. On the other hand, the transportal of the lower eye of a flat fish to the upper side of the head, and the formation of a prehensile tail, may be attributed almost wholly to continued use, together with inheritance. With respect to the mammae of the higher animals, the most probable conjecture is that primordially the cutaneous glands over the whole surface of a marsupial sac secreted a nutritious fluid, and that these glands were improved in function through natural selection, and concentrated into a confined area, in which case they would have formed a mamma. There is no more difficulty in understanding how the branched spines of some ancient echinoderm, which served as a defense, became developed through natural selection into tridactyl pediculae than in understanding the development of the pincers of crustaceans through slight serviceable modifications in the ultimate and penultimate segments of a limb, which was at first used solely for locomotion. In the avicularia and vibracula of the polyzoa, we have organs widely different in appearance, developed from the same source, and with the vibracula we can understand how the successive gradations might have been of service. With the pollinia of orchids, the threads which originally served to tie together the pollen grains can be traced cohering into cauticles, and these steps can likewise be followed by which viscid matter, such as that secreted by the stigmas of ordinary flowers, and still subserving nearly but not quite the same purpose, became attached to the free ends of the cauticles all these gradations being of manifest benefit to the plants in question. With respect to climbing plants, I need not repeat what has been so lately said. It has often been asked, if natural selection be so potent, why has not this or that structure been gained by certain species, to which it would apparently have been advantageous? But it is unreasonable to expect a precise answer to such questions, considering our ignorance of the past history of each species, and of the conditions which at the present day determine its numbers and range. 
in most cases only general reasons, but in some few cases special reasons can be assigned. Thus, to adapt a species to new habits of life, many coordinated modifications are almost indispensable, and it may often have happened that the requisite parts did not vary in the right manner or to the right degree. Many species must have been prevented from increasing in numbers through destructive agencies, which stood in no relation to certain structures, which we imagine would have been gained through natural selection from appearing to us advantageous to the species. In this case, as the struggle for life did not depend on such structures, they could not have been acquired through natural selection. In many cases, Complex and long-enduring conditions, often of a peculiar nature, are necessary for the development of a structure, and the requisite conditions may seldom have concurred. The belief that any given structure, which we think, often erroneously, would have been beneficial to a species, would have been gained under all circumstances through natural selection. It is opposed to what we can understand of its manner of action. Mr. Minvart does not deny that natural selection has effected something, but he considers it as demonstrably insufficient to account for the phenomenon which I explain by its agency. His chief arguments have now been considered, and the others will hereafter be considered. They seem to me to partake little of the character of demonstration, and to have little weight in comparison with those in favor of the power of natural selection, aided by the other agencies often specified. I am bound to add that some of the facts and arguments here used by me have been advanced for the same purpose in an able article lately published in the Medical Chirurgical Review. At the present day, almost all naturalists admit evolution under some form. Mr. Minvard believes that species change through an internal force or tendency about which it is not pretended that anything is known. That species have a capacity for change will be admitted by all evolutionists, but there is no need, as it seems to me, to invoke any internal force beyond the tendency to ordinary variability which, through the aid of selection, by man has given rise to many well-adapted domestic races, and which, through the aid of natural selection, would equally well give rise by graduated steps to natural races or species. The final result will generally have been, as already explained, an advance, but in some few cases a retrogression, an organization. Mr. Minvart is further inclined to believe, and some naturalists agree with him, that new species manifest themselves with suddenness and by modifications appearing at once. For instance, he supposes that the differences between the extinct three-toed hipparion and the horse arose suddenly. He thinks it difficult to believe that the wing of a bird was developed in any other way than by a completely sudden modification of a marked and important kind, and apparently he would extend the same view to the wings of bats and pterodactyls. This conclusion, which implies great breaks of discontinuity in the series, appears to me improbable in the highest degree. 
Everyone who believes in slow and gradual evolution will, of course, admit that specific changes may have been as abrupt and as great as any single variation, which we meet with under nature or even under domestication. But as species are more variable when domesticated or cultivated than under their natural conditions, it is not probable that such great and abrupt variations have often occurred under nature, as are known occasionally to arise under domestication. Of these latter variations, several may be attributed to reversion, and the characters which thus reappear were, it is probable, in many cases at first gained in a gradual manner. A still greater number must be called monstrosities, such as six-fingered men, porcupine men, ancon sheep, niata cattle, etc., and as they are widely different in character from natural species, they throw very little light on our subject. Excluding such cases of abrupt variations, the few which remain would at best constitute, if found in a state of nature, doubtful species, closely related to their parental types. My reasons for doubting whether natural species have changed as abruptly as have occasionally domestic races, and for entirely disbelieving that they have changed in the wonderful manner indicated by Mr. Minvart, are as follows. According to our experience, abrupt and strongly marked variations occur in our domesticated productions, singly and at rather long intervals of time. If such occurred under nature, they would be liable, as formerly explained, to be lost by accidental causes of destruction and by subsequent intercrossing. And so it is known to be under domestication, unless abrupt variations of this kind are specially preserved and separated by the care of man. Hence, in order that a new species should suddenly appear in the manner supposed by Mr. Minvart, it is almost necessary to believe, in opposition to all analogy, that several wonderfully changed individuals appeared simultaneously within the same district. This difficulty, as in the case of unconscious selection by man, is avoided on the theory of gradual evolution, through the preservation of a large number of individuals which varied more or less in any favorable direction, and of the destruction of a large number which varied in the opposite manner. That many species have been evolved in an extremely gradual manner, there can hardly be a doubt. The species, and even the genera, of many large natural families are so closely allied together that it is difficult to distinguish not a few of them. On every continent, in proceeding from north to south, from lowland to upland, etc., we meet with a host of closely related or representative species, as we are likely to do on certain distinct continents, which we have reason to believe were formerly connected. But in making these and the following remarks, I am compelled to allude to subjects hereinafter to be discussed. Look at the many outlying islands round a continent, and see how many of their inhabitants can be raised only to the rank of doubtful species. So it is that if we look to past times and compare the species which have just passed away with those still living within the same areas, 
or if we compare the fossil species embedded in the substages of the same geological formation, it is indeed manifest that multitudes of species are related in the closest manner to other species that still exist or have lately existed, and it will hardly be maintained that such species have been developed in an abrupt or sudden manner. Nor should it be forgotten, when we look to the special parts of allied species instead of to distinct species, that numerous and wonderfully fine gradations can be traced, connecting together widely different structures. Many large groups of facts are intelligible only on the principle that species have been evolved by very small steps. For instance, the fact that the species included in the larger genera are more closely related to each other and present a greater number of varieties than do the species in the smaller genera. The former are also grouped in little clusters, like varieties around species, and they present other analogies with varieties, as was shown in our second chapter. On this same principle, we can understand how it is that specific characters are more variable than generic characters, and how the parts which are developed in an extraordinary degree or manner are more variable than other parts of the same species. Many analogous facts, all pointing in the same direction, could be added. Although many species have almost certainly been produced by steps not greater than those separating fine varieties, yet it may be maintained that some have been developed in a different and abrupt manner. Such an admission, however, ought not to be made without strong evidence being assigned. The vague and in some respects false analogies, as they have been shown to be by Mr. Chauncey Wright, which have been advanced in favor of this view, such as the sudden crystallization of inorganic substances, or the falling of a faceted spheroid from one facet to another, hardly deserve consideration. One class of facts, however, namely the sudden appearance of new and distinct forms of life in our geological formations, supports at first sight the belief in abrupt development. But the value of this evidence depends almost entirely on the perfection of the geological record in relation to periods remote in the history of the world. If the record is as fragmentary as many geologists strenuously assert, there is nothing strange in new forms appearing as if suddenly developed. Unless we admit transformations as prodigious as those advocated by Mr. Minvart, such as the sudden development of the wings of birds or bats, or the sudden conversion of a hyperion into a horse, hardly any light is thrown by the belief in abrupt modifications on the deficiency of connecting links in our geological formations. But against the belief in such abrupt changes, embryology enters a strong protest. It is notorious that the wings of bats and birds, and the legs of horses or other quadrupeds, are indistinguishable at an early embryonic period, and they become differentiated by insensibly fine steps. Embryological resemblances of all kinds can be accounted for, as we shall hereafter see, by the progenitors of our existing species having buried after early youth, and having transmitted their newly acquired characters to their offspring at a corresponding age. 
the embryo is thus left almost unaffected, and serves as a record of the past condition of the species. Hence it is that existing species, during the early stages of their development, so often resemble ancient and extinct forms belonging to the same class. On this view of the meaning of embryological resemblances, and indeed on any view, it is incredible that an animal should have undergone such momentous and abrupt transformations as those above indicated, and yet should not bear even a trace in its embryonic condition of any sudden modification, every detail in its structure being developed by insensibly fine steps. He who believes that some ancient form was transformed suddenly through an internal force or tendency into, for instance, one furnished with wings, will be almost compelled to assume, in opposition to all analogy, that many individuals varied simultaneously. It cannot be denied that such abrupt and great changes of structure are widely different from those which most species apparently have undergone. He will further be compelled to believe that many structures beautifully adapted to all the other parts of the same creature, and to the surrounding conditions, have been suddenly produced, and of such complex and wonderful co-adaptations he will not be able to assign a shadow of an explanation. He will be forced to admit that these great and sudden transformations have left no trace of their action on the embryo. To admit all this is, as it seems to me, to enter into the realms of miracle, and to leave those of science. So ends chapter 7, Miscellaneous Objections to the Theory of Natural Selection. The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. Sixth London Edition by Charles Darwin Chapter 8 Part 1 Instinct Contents of this chapter include Instincts comparable with habits, but different in their origin Instincts graduated Aphides and ants Instincts variable Domestic instincts, their origin Natural instincts of the cuckoo, molothrus, ostrich, and parasitic bees. Slave-making ants. Hive-bee, its cell-making instinct. Changes of instinct and structure not necessarily simultaneous. Difficulties of the theory of natural selection of instincts. Neuter or sterile insects. Summary. Many instincts are so wonderful that their development will probably appear to the reader a difficulty sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. I may here premise that I have nothing to do with the origin of the mental powers, any more than I have with that of life itself. We are concerned only with the diversities of instinct and of the other mental faculties in animals of the same class. I will not attempt any definition of instinct it would be easy to show that several distinct mental actions are commonly embraced by this term, but everyone understands what is meant when it is said that instinct impels the cuckoo to migrate 
and to lay her eggs in other birds' nests. An action which we ourselves require experience to enable us to perform, when performed by an animal, more especially by a very young one, without experience, and when performed by many individuals in the same way, without their knowing for what purpose it is performed, is usually said to be instinctive. But I could show that none of these characters are universal. A little dose of judgment or reason, as Pierre Huber expresses it, often comes into play, even with animals low in the scale of nature. Frederick Cuvier and several of the older metaphysicians have compared instinct with habit. This comparison gives, I think, an accurate notion of the frame of mind under which an instinctive action is performed, but not necessarily of its origin. How unconsciously many habitual actions are performed, indeed not rarely in direct opposition of our conscious will. Yet they may be modified by the will or reason. Habits easily become associated with other habits, with certain periods of time and states of the body. When once acquired, they often remain constant throughout life. Several other points of resemblance between instinct and habits could be pointed out. As in repeating a well-known song, so in instincts, one action follows another by a sort of rhythm. If a person be interrupted in a song, or in repeating anything by rote, he is generally forced to go back to recover the habitual train of thought. So P. Huber found it was with a caterpillar, which makes a very complicated hammock. For if he took a caterpillar which had completed its hammock up to, say, the sixth stage of construction, and put it into a hammock completed only to the third stage, the caterpillar simply re-performed the fourth, fifth and sixth stages of construction. If, however, a caterpillar were taken out of a hammock made up, for instance, to the third stage, and were put into one finished up to the sixth stage, so that much of its work was already done for it, far from deriving any benefit from this, it was much embarrassed and, in order to complete its hammock, seemed forced to start from the third stage, where it had left off, and thus tried to complete the already finished work. If we suppose any habitual action to become inherited, and it can be shown that this does sometimes happen, then the resemblance between what originally was a habit and an instinct becomes so close as not to be distinguished. If Mozart, instead of playing the pianoforte at three years old with wonderfully little practice, had played a tune with no practice at all, he might truly be said to have done so instinctively. But it would be a serious error to suppose that the greater number of instincts have been acquired by habit in one generation, and then transmitted by inheritance to succeeding generations. It can be clearly shown that the most wonderful instincts with which we are acquainted, namely those of the hive-bee and of many ants, could not possibly have been acquired by habit it will be universally admitted that instincts are as important as corporeal structures for the welfare of each species under its present conditions of life. Under changed conditions of life, it is at least possible that slight modifications of instinct may be profitable to a species.
and if it can be shown that instincts do vary ever so little, then I can see no difficulty in natural selection preserving and continually accumulating variations of instinct to any extent that was profitable. It is thus, as I believe, that all the most complex and wonderful instincts have originated, as modifications of corporeal structure arise from, and are increased by, use or habit, and are diminished or lost by disuse, so I do not doubt it has been with instincts. But I believe that the effects of habit are in many cases of subordinate importance to the effects of the natural selection of what may be called spontaneous variations of instincts, that is, of variations produced by the same unknown causes, which produce slight deviations of bodily structure. No complex instinct can possibly be produced through natural selection, except by the slow and gradual accumulation of numerous, slight yet profitable, variations. Hence, as in the case of corporeal structures, we ought to find in nature not the actual transitional gradations by which each complex instinct has been acquired, for these could be found only in the lineal ancestors of each species, but we ought to find in the collateral lines of descent some evidence of such gradations, or we ought at least to be able to show that gradations of some kind are possible, and this we certainly can do. I have been surprised to find, making allowance for the instincts of animals having been but little observed, except in Europe and North America, and for no instinct being known among extinct species, how very generally gradations, leading to the most complex instincts, can be discovered. Changes of instinct may sometimes be facilitated by the same species having different instincts at different periods of life, or at different seasons of the year, or when placed under different circumstances, etc., in which case either the one or the other instinct might be preserved by natural selection. And such instances of diversity of instinct in the same species can be shown to occur in nature. Again, as in the case of corporeal structure, and conformably to my theory, the instinct of each species is good for itself, but has never, as far as we can judge, been produced for the exclusive good of others. One of the strongest instances of an animal apparently performing an action for the sole good of another with which I am acquainted is that of aphides voluntarily yielding, as was first observed by Huber, their sweet excretion to ants. They do so voluntarily, the following facts show. I removed all the ants from a group of about a dozen aphides on a dock plant, and prevented their attendance during several hours. After this interval, I felt sure that the aphides would want to excrete. I watched them for some time through a lens, but not one excreted. I then tickled and stroked them with the hair in the same manner, as well as I could, as the ants do with their antennae, but not one excreted. Afterwards I allowed an ant to visit them, and it immediately seemed, by its eager way of running about, 
to be well aware what a rich flock it had discovered, it then began to play with its antennae on the abdomen first of one aphis and then of another, and each, as soon as it felt the antennae, immediately lifted up its abdomen and excreted a limpid drop of sweet juice, which was eagerly devoured by the ant. Even the quite young aphides behaved in this manner, showing that the action was instinctive and not the result of experience. It is certain from the observations of Huber that the aphides show no dislike to the ants. If the latter be not present, they are at last compelled to eject their excretion. But as the excretion is extremely viscid, it is no doubt a convenience to the aphides to have it removed. Therefore, probably they do not excrete solely for the good of the ants. Although there is no evidence that any animal performs an action for the exclusive good of another species, yet each tries to take advantage of the instincts of others, as each takes advantage of the weaker bodily structure of another species. So again, certain instincts cannot be considered as absolutely perfect, but as details on this and other such points are not indispensable, they may be here passed over. As some degree of variation in instincts under a state of nature, and the inheritance of such variations, are indispensable for the action of natural selection, as many instances as possible ought to be given, but want of space prevents me. I can only assert that instincts certainly do vary. For instance, the migratory instinct, both in extent and direction, and in its total loss. So it is with the nests of birds, which vary partly in dependence to the situations chosen, and on the nature and temperature of the country inhabited, but often from causes wholly unknown to us. Audubon has given several remarkable cases of differences in the nests of the same species in the northern and southern United States. Why, it has been asked, if instinct be variable, has it not granted to the bee the ability to use some other material when wax was deficient? But what other natural material could bees use? They will work, as I have seen, with wax hardened with vermilion or softened with lard. Andrew Knight observed that his bees, instead of laboriously collecting propolis, used a cement of wax and turpentine with which he had covered decorticated trees. It has lately been shown that bees, instead of searching for pollen, will gladly use a very different substance, namely oatmeal. Fear of any particular enemy is certainly an instinctive quality, as may be seen in nestling birds, though it is strengthened by experience and by the sight of fear of the same enemy in other animals. The fear of man is slowly acquired, as I have elsewhere shown, by the various animals which inhabit desert islands, and we see an instance of this even in England, in the greater wildness of all our large birds in comparison with our small birds, for the large birds have been most persecuted by man. We may safely attribute the greater wildness of our large birds to this cause, for in uninhabited islands large birds are not more fearful than small, and the magpie, so wary in England, 
is tame in Norway, as is the hooded crow in Egypt. That the mental qualities of animals of the same kind, born in a state of nature, vary much, could be shown by many facts. Several cases could also be adduced of occasional and strange habits in wild animals, which, if advantageous to the species, might have given rise, through natural selection, to new instincts. But I am well aware that these general statements, without the facts in detail, can produce but a feeble effort on the reader's mind. I can only repeat my assurance that I do not speak without good evidence. Inherited Changes of Habit or Instinct in Domesticated Animals The possibility, or even probability, of inherited variations of instinct in a state of nature will be strengthened by briefly considering a few cases under domestication. We shall thus be enabled to see the part which habit and the selection of so-called spontaneous variations have played in modifying the mental qualities of our domestic animals. It is notorious how much domestic animals vary in their mental qualities. With cats, for instance, one naturally takes to catching rats, and another mice, and these tendencies are known to be inherited. One cat, according to Mr. Sinjin, always brought home game birds, another hares or rabbits, and another hunted on marshy ground and almost nightly caught woodcocks or snipes. A number of curious and authentic instances could be given of various shades of disposition and taste, and likewise of the oddest tricks associated with certain frames of mind or periods of time. But let us look to the familiar case of the breeds of dogs. It cannot be doubted that young pointers... I have myself seen striking instances, will sometimes point and even back other dogs the very first time that they are taken out. Retrieving is certainly in some degree inherited by retrievers, and the tendency to run round instead of at a flock of sheep by shepherd dogs. I cannot see that these actions, performed without experience by the young, and in nearly the same manner by each individual, performed with eager delight by each breed and without the end being known. For the young pointer can no more know that he points to aid his master than the white butterfly knows why she lays her eggs on the leaf of the cabbage. I cannot see that these actions differ essentially from true instincts. If we were to behold one kind of wolf, when young and without any training, as soon as it scented its prey, stand motionless like a statue, and then slowly crawl forward with a peculiar gait, and another kind of wolf rushing round instead of at a herd of deer, and driving them to a distant point, we should assuredly call these actions instinctive. Domestic instincts, as they may be called, are certainly far less fixed than natural instincts, but they have been acted on by far less vigorous selection and have been transmitted for an incomparably shorter period under less fixed conditions of life. How strong these domestic instincts, habits and dispositions are inherited 
and how curiously they become mingled, is well shown when different breeds of dogs are crossed. Thus it is known that a cross with a bulldog has affected for many generations the courage and obstinacy of greyhounds, and a cross with a greyhound has given to the whole family of shepherd dogs a tendency to hunt hares. These domestic instincts, when thus tested by crossing, resemble natural instincts, which in a like manner become curiously blended together, and for a long period exhibit traces of the instincts of either parent. For example, Leroy describes a dog whose great-grandfather was a wolf, and this dog showed a trace of its wild parentage only in one way, by not coming in a straight line to his master when called. Domestic instincts are sometimes spoken of as actions which have become inherited solely from long-continued and compulsory habit, but this is not true. No one would ever have thought of teaching, or probably could have taught, the tumbler pigeon to tumble, an action which, as I have witnessed, is performed by young birds that have never seen a pigeon tumble. We may believe that some one pigeon showed a slight tendency to this strange habit, and that the long-continued selection of the best individuals in successive generations made tumblers what they are now. At New Glasgow there are house tumblers, as I hear from Mr. Brent, which cannot fly eighteen inches high without going head over heels. It may be doubted whether any one would have thought of training a dog to point, had not some one dog naturally shown a tendency in this line, and this is known occasionally to happen, as I once saw in a pure terrier. The act of pointing is probably, as many have thought, only the exaggerated pause of an animal preparing to spring on its prey. When the first tendency to point was once displayed, methodical selection and the inherited effects of compulsory training in each successive generation would soon complete the work. And unconscious selection is still in progress, as each man tries to procure, without intending to improve the breed, dogs which stand and hunt best. On the other hand, habit alone in some cases has sufficed. Hardly any animal is more difficult to tame than the young of the wild rabbit. Scarcely any animal is tamer than the young of the tame rabbit. But I can hardly suppose that domestic rabbits have often been selected for tameness alone, so that we must attribute at least the greater part of the inherited change from extreme wildness to extreme tameness to habit and long-continued close confinement. Natural instincts are lost under domestication. A remarkable instance of this is seen in those breeds of fowls which very rarely or ever become broody, that is, never wish to sit on their eggs. Familiarity alone prevents our seeing how largely and how permanently the minds of our domestic animals have been modified. It is scarcely possible to doubt that the love of man has become instinctive in the dog. All wolves, foxes, jackals, and species of the cat genus, when kept tame, are most eager to attack poultry, sheep, and pigs, 
and this tendency has been found incurable in dogs which have been brought home as puppies from countries such as Tierra del Fuego and Australia, where the savages do not keep these domestic animals. How rarely, on the other hand, do our civilized dogs, even when quite young, require to be taught not to attack poultry, sheep and pigs? No doubt they occasionally make an attack, and are then beaten, and if not cured, they are destroyed, so that habit and some degree of selection have probably concurred in civilizing, by inheritance, our dogs. On the other hand, young chickens have lost wholly by habit that fear of the dog and cat, which no doubt was originally instinctive in them, for I am informed by Captain Hutton that the young chickens of the parent stock, the Gallus Bankiva, when reared in India under a hen, are at first excessively wild. So it is with young pheasants reared in England under a hen. It is not that chickens have lost all fear, but fear only of dogs and cats, for if the hen gives the danger chuckle, they will run, more especially young turkeys, from under her and conceal themselves in the surrounding grass or thickets, and this is evidently done for the instinctive purpose of allowing, as we see in wild grand birds, their mother to fly away. But this instinct retained by our chickens has become useless under domestication, for the mother hen has almost lost by disuse the power of flight. Hence we may conclude that under domestication instincts have been acquired, and natural instincts have been lost, partly by habit and partly by man selecting and accumulating, during successive generations, peculiar mental habits and actions, which at first appeared from what we must, in our ignorance, call an accident. In some cases compulsory habit alone has sufficed to produce inherited mental changes. In other cases compulsory habit has done nothing, and all has been the result of selection, pursued both methodically and unconsciously, but in most cases habit and selection have probably concurred. Special Instincts We shall, perhaps, best understand how instincts in a state of nature have become modified by selection by considering a few cases. I will select only three, namely the instinct which leads the cuckoo to lay her eggs in other birds' nests, the slave-making instinct of certain ants, and the cell-making power of the hive-bee. These two latter instincts have generally and justly been ranked by naturalists as the most wonderful of all known instincts. Instincts of the Cuckoo It is supposed by some naturalists that the more immediate cause of the instinct of the cuckoo is that she lays her eggs not daily, but at intervals of two or three days, so that if she were to make her own nest and sit on her own eggs, those first laid would have to be left for some time unincubated, or there would be eggs and young birds of different ages in the same nest. If this were the case, the process of laying and hatching might be inconveniently long, more especially as she migrates at a very early period, and the first hatched young would probably have to be fed by the male alone. 
but the American cuckoo is in this predicament, for she makes her own nest and has eggs and young successively hatched all at the same time. It has been both asserted and denied that the American cuckoo occasionally lays her eggs in other birds' nests, but I have lately heard from Dr. Merrill of Iowa that he once found in Illinois a young cuckoo together with a young jay in the nest of a blue jay, Garrulus cristatus, and as both were nearly full-feathered, there could be no mistake in their identification. I could also give several instances of various birds which have been known occasionally to lay their eggs in other birds' nests. Now let us suppose that the ancient progenitor of our European cuckoo had the habits of the American cuckoo, and that she occasionally laid an egg in another bird's nest. If the old bird profited by this occasional habit, through being enabled to emigrate earlier, or through any other cause, or if the young were made more vigorous by advantage being taken of the mistaken instinct of another species than when reared by their own mother, encumbered as she could hardly fail to be by having eggs and young of different ages at the same time, then the old birds or the fostered young would gain an advantage. And analogy would lead us to believe that the young thus reared would be apt to follow by inheritance the occasional and aberrant habit of their mother, and in their turn would be apt to lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and thus be more successful in rearing their young. By a continued process of this nature, I believe that the strange instinct of our cuckoo has been generated. It has also recently been ascertained on sufficient evidence by Adolf Müller, that the cuckoo occasionally lays her eggs on the bare ground, sits on them, and feeds her young. This rare event is probably a case of reversion to the long-lost aboriginal instinct of nidification. It has been objected that I have not noticed other related instincts and adaptations of structure in the cuckoo, which are spoken of as necessarily coordinated. But in all cases, speculation of an instinct, known to us only in a single species, is useless, for we have hitherto had no facts to guide us. Until recently, the instincts of the European and of the non-parasitic American cuckoo alone were known. Now, owing to Mr. Ramsey's observations, we have learned something about three Australian species which lay their eggs in other birds' nests. The chief points to be referred to are three. First, that the common cuckoo, with rare exceptions, lays only one egg in a nest, so that the large and voracious young bird receives ample food. Secondly, that the eggs are remarkably small, not exceeding those of a skylark, a bird about one-fourth as large as the cuckoo. That the small size of the egg is a real case of adaptation we may infer from the fact of the non-parasitic American cuckoo lying full-sized eggs. Thirdly, that the young cuckoo, soon after birth, has the instinct, the strength, and a properly shaped back for ejecting its foster brothers, which then perish from cold and hunger. This has been boldly called a beneficent arrangement, 
in order that the young cuckoo may get sufficient food, and that its foster-brothers may perish before they had acquired much feeling. Turning now to the Australian species, though these birds generally lay only one egg in a nest, it is not rare to find two and even three eggs in the same nest. In the bronze cuckoo, the eggs vary greatly in size, from eight to ten lines in length. Now, if it had been an advantage to this species to have laid eggs even smaller than those now laid, so as to have deceived certain foster parents, or, as is more probable, to have been hatched within a shorter period, for it is asserted that there is a relation between the size of eggs and the period of their incubation, then there is no difficulty in believing that a race or species might have been formed which would have laid smaller and smaller eggs, for these would have been more safely hatched and reared. Mr. Ramsay remarks that two of the Australian cuckoos, when they lay their eggs in an open nest, manifest a decided preference for nests containing eggs similar in colour to their own. The European species apparently manifests some tendency towards a similar instinct, but not rarely departs from it, as is shown by her laying her dull and pale-coloured eggs in the nest of the hedge-warbler with bright greenish-blue eggs. Had our cuckoo invariably displayed the above instinct, it would assuredly have been added to those which it is assumed must all have been acquired together. The eggs of the Australian bronze cuckoo vary, according to Mr. Ramsay, to an extraordinary degree in colour, so that in this respect, as well as in size, natural selection might have secured and fixed any advantageous variation. In the case of the European cuckoo, the offspring of the foster parents are commonly ejected from the nest within three days after the cuckoo is hatched and as the latter at this age is in a most helpless condition, Mr. Gould was formerly inclined to believe that the act of ejection was performed by the foster parents themselves. But he has now received a trustworthy account of a young cuckoo which was actually seen while still blind and not able even to hold up its own head in the act of ejecting its foster brothers. One of these was replaced in the nest by the observer, and was again thrown out. With respect to the means by which this strange and odious instinct was acquired, if it were of great importance for the young cuckoo, as is probably the case, to receive as much food as possible soon after birth, I can see no special difficulty in its having gradually acquired, during successive generations, the blind desire, the strength and the structure necessary for the work of ejection, for those cuckoos which had such habits and structure best developed would be the most securely reared. The first step towards the acquisition of the proper instinct might have been more unintentional restlessness on the part of the young bird, when somewhat advanced in age and strength, the habit having been afterwards improved and transmitted to an earlier age. I can see no more difficulty in this than in the unhatched young of other birds acquiring the instinct to break through their own shells, or than in young snakes acquiring in the upper jaws, as Owen has remarked, 
a transitory sharp tooth for cutting through the tough eggshell. For if each part is liable to individual variations at all ages, and the variations tend to be inherited at a corresponding or earlier age, propositions which cannot be disputed, then the instincts and structure of the young could be slowly modified as surely as those of the adult, and both cases must stand or fall together with the whole theory of natural selection. Some species of the Molothrus, a widely distinct genus of American birds, allied to our starlings, have parasitic habits like those of the cuckoo, and the species present an interesting gradation in the perfection of their instincts. The sexes of Molothrus badius are stated by an excellent observer, Mr. Hudson, sometimes to live promiscuously together in flocks, and sometimes to pair. They either build a nest of their own, or seize on one belonging to some other bird, occasionally throwing out the nestlings of the stranger. They either lay their eggs in the nest thus appropriated, or oddly enough build one for themselves on the top of it. They usually sit on their own eggs and rear their own young, but Mr. Hudson says it is probable that they are occasionally parasitic, for he has seen the young of this species following old birds of a distinct kind and clamouring to be fed by them. The parasitic habits of another species of Molothrus, the M. bonariensis, are much more highly developed than those of the last, but are still far from perfect. This bird, as far as it is known, invariably lays its eggs in the nests of strangers, but it is remarkable that several together sometimes commence to build an irregular untidy nest of their own, placed in singular ill-adapted situations, as on the leaves of a large thistle. They never, however, as far as Mr. Hudson has ascertained, complete a nest for themselves. They often lay so many eggs, from fifteen to twenty, in the same foster nest that few or none can possibly be hatched. They have, moreover, the extraordinary habit of pecking holes in the eggs, whether of their own species or of their foster parents, which they find in the appropriated nests. They drop also many eggs on the bare ground, which are thus wasted. A third species, the M. pecoris, of North America, has acquired instincts as perfect as those of the cuckoo, for it never lays more than one egg in a foster nest, so that the young bird is securely reared. Mr. Hudson is a strong disbeliever in evolution, but he appears to have been so much struck by the imperfect instincts of the Molothrus bonariensis, that he quotes my words and asks, Must we consider these habits, not as especially endowed or created instincts, but as small consequences of one general law, namely transition? Various birds, as has already been remarked, occasionally lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. This habit is not very uncommon with the Galinaceae, and throws some light on the singular instinct of the ostrich. In this family several hen birds unite, and lay first a few eggs in one nest, and then in another, 
and these are hatched by the males. This instinct may probably be accounted for by the fact of the hens laying a large number of eggs, but, as with the cuckoo, at intervals of two or three days. The instinct, however, of the American ostrich, as in the case of the Molothrus bunariensis, has not as yet been perfected, for a surprising number of eggs lay strewed over the plains, so that in one day's hunting I picked up no less than twenty lost and wasted eggs. Many bees are parasitic, and regularly lay their eggs in the nests of other kinds of bees. This case is more remarkable than that of the cuckoo, for these bees have not only had their instincts, but their structure modified in accordance with their parasitic habits, for they do not possess the pollen-collecting apparatus, which would have been indispensable if they had stored up food for their own young. Some species of sphagidae, wasp-like insects, are likewise parasitic, and M. Faber has lately shown good reason for believing that, although the Tachytis nigra generally makes its own burrow, and stores it with paralyzed prey for its own larvae, yet that when this insect finds a burrow already made and stored by another sphex, it takes advantage of the prize and becomes for the occasion parasitic. In this case, as with that of the Molothrus or Cuckoo, I can see no difficulty in natural selection making an occasional habit permanent, if of advantage to the species. And if the instinct whose nest and stored food are feloniously appropriated be not thus exterminated. End of chapter 8, part 1 The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life 6th London Edition by Charles Darwin Chapter number 8 Instinct Part 2 Slave-Making Instinct This remarkable instinct was first discovered in the Formica polyergis rufusins by Pierre Hubert, a better observer even than his celebrated father. This ant is absolutely dependent on its slaves. Without their aid, the species would certainly become extinct in a single year. The males and fertile females do no work of any kind, and the workers or sterile females, though most energetic and courageous in capturing slaves, do no other work. They are incapable of making their own nests, or of feeding their own larvae. When the old nest is found inconvenient and they have to migrate, it is the slaves which determine the migration, and actually carry their masters in their jaws. So utterly helpless are the masters, that when Hubert shut up thirty of them without a slave, but with plenty of the food which they like best, and with their larvae and pupae to stimulate them to work, they did nothing. They could not even feed themselves, and many perished of hunger. Hubert then introduced a single slave, Fusca, and she instantly set to work, fed and saved the survivors, made some cells and tended the larvae, and put all to rights. What can be more extraordinary than these well-ascertained facts? If we had not known of any other slave-making ant, it would have been hopeless to speculate how so wonderful an instinct 
could have been perfected. Another species, Formica sanguinea, was likewise first discovered by P. Hubert to be a slave-making ant. This species is found in the southern parts of England, and its habits have been attended to by Mr. F. Smith of the British Museum, to whom I am much indebted for information on this and other subjects. Although fully trusting to the statements of Hubert and Mr. Smith, I tried to approach the subject in a skeptical frame of mind, as any one may well be excused for doubting the existence of so extraordinary an instinct as that of making slaves. Hence, I will give the observations which I made in some little detail. I opened fourteen nests of F. sanguinea, and found a few slaves in all. Males and fertile females of the slave species F. fusca are found only in their own proper communities, and have never been observed in the nest of sanguinea. The slaves are black, and not above half the size of their red masters, so that the contrast in their appearance is great. When the nest is slightly disturbed, the slaves occasionally come out, and like their masters are much agitated and defend the nest. When the nest is much disturbed, and the larvae and pupae are exposed, the slaves work energetically together with their masters in carrying them away to a place of safety. Hence it is clear that the slaves feel quite at home. During the months of June and July, on three successive years, I watched for many hours several nests in Surrey and Sussex, and never saw a slave either leave or enter a nest. As, during these months, the slaves are very few in number, I thought that they might behave differently when more numerous, but Mr. Smith informs me that he has watched the nests at various hours during May, June, and August, both in Surrey and Hampshire, and has never seen the slaves, though present in large numbers in August, either leave or enter the nest. Hence, he considers them as strictly household slaves. The masters, on the other hand, may be constantly seen bringing in materials for the nest and food of all kinds. During the year 1860, however, in the month of July, I came across a community with an unusually large stock of slaves, and I observed a few slaves mingled with their masters leaving the nest and marching along the same road to a tall scotch fir tree twenty-five yards distant, which they had ascended together, probably in search of aphids or cocci. According to Hubert, who had ample opportunities for observation, the slaves in Switzerland habitually work with their masters in making the nest, and they alone open and close the doors in the morning and evening. And, as Hubert expressly states, their principal office is to search for aphids. This difference in the usual habits of the masters and slaves in the two countries probably depends merely on the slaves being captured in greater numbers in Switzerland than in England. One day I fortunately witnessed a migration of F. sanguinea from one nest to another, and it was a most interesting spectacle to behold the masters carefully carrying their slaves in their jaws, instead of being carried by them as in the case of F. rufusens. Another day my attention was struck by about a score of the slave-makers haunting the same spot, and evidently not in search of food. They approached and were vigorously repulsed by an independent community of the slave species F. fusca, sometimes as many as three of these ants clinging to the legs of the slave-making F. sanguinea. The latter ruthlessly killed their small opponents and carried their dead bodies as food to their nest, 
twenty-nine yards distant, but they were prevented from getting any pupae to rear as slaves. I then dug up a small parcel of the pupae of F. Fusca from another nest, and put them down on a bare spot near the place of combat. They were eagerly seized and carried off by the tyrants, who perhaps fancied that, after all, they had been victorious in their late combat. At the same time, I laid on the same place a small parcel of the pupae of another species, F. flava, with a few of these little yellow ants still clinging to the fragments of their nest. This species is sometimes, though rarely, made into slaves, and has been described by Mr. Smith. Although so small a species, it is very courageous, and I have seen it ferociously attack other ants. In one instance I found to my surprise an independent community of F. flava under a stone beneath a nest of the slave-making F. sanguinea, and when I had accidentally disturbed both nests, the little ants attacked their big neighbors with surprising courage. Now I was curious to ascertain whether F. sanguinea could distinguish the pupae of F. fusca, which they habitually make into slaves, from those of the little and furious F. flava, which they rarely capture. And it was evident that they did at once distinguish them, for we have seen that they eagerly and instantly seized the pupae of F. fusca, whereas they were much terrified when they came across the pupae, or even the earth from the nest of F. flava, and quickly ran away. But in about a quarter of an hour, shortly after all the little yellow ants had crawled away, they took heart and carried off the pupae. One evening I visited another community of F. sanguinea, and found a number of these ants returning home and entering their nests, carrying the dead bodies of F. fusca, showing that it was not a migration, and numerous pupae. I traced a long file of ants burdened with booty for about forty yards back, to a very thick clump of heath, whence I saw the last individual of F. sanguinea emerge, carrying a pupa. But I was not able to find the desolated nest in the thick heath. The nest, however, must have been close at hand, for two or three individuals of F. fusca were rushing about in the greatest agitation, and one was perched motionless with his own pupa in its mouth on the top of a spray of heath, an image of despair over its ravaged home. Such are the facts, though they did not need confirmation by me in regard to the wonderful instinct of making slaves. Let it be observed what a contrast the instinctive habits of F. sanguinea present with those of the continental F. rufusins. The latter does not build its own nest, does not determine its own migrations, does not collect food for itself or its young, and cannot even feed itself. It is absolutely dependent on its numerous slaves. Formica sanguinea, on the other hand, possesses much fewer slaves, and in the early part of the summer extremely few. The masters determine when and where a new nest shall be formed, and when they migrate, the masters carry the slaves. Both in Switzerland and England the slaves seem to have the exclusive care of the larvae, and the masters alone go on slave-making expeditions. In Switzerland, the slaves and masters work together, making and bringing materials for the nest. Both, but chiefly the slaves, tended milk, as it may be called, their aphids, and thus both collect food for the community. In England, the masters alone usually leave the nest to collect building materials and food for themselves, their slaves, and larvae, so that the masters in this country receive much less service from their slaves than they do in Switzerland. By what steps the instinct of F. sanguinea originated, I will not pretend to conjecture. 
but as ants which are not slave-makers will, as I have seen, carry off pupae of other species if scattered near their nests. It is possible that such pupae originally stored as food might become developed, and the foreign ants thus unintentionally reared would then follow their proper instincts and do what work they could. If their presence proved useful to the species which had seized them, it, if it were more advantageous to this species to capture workers than to procreate them, the habit of collecting pupae, originally for food, might by natural selection be strengthened and rendered permanent for the very different purpose of raising slaves. When the instinct was once acquired, if carried out to a much less extent even than our British F. sanguinea, which as we have seen is less aided by its slaves than the same species in Switzerland, natural selection might increase and modify the instinct always supposing each modification to be of use to the species, until an ant was formed as abjectly dependent on its slaves as is the Formica rufescens. Cell-making instinct of the hive bee I will not here enter on minute details on this subject, but will merely give an outline of the conclusions at which I have arrived. He must be a dull man who can examine the exquisite structure of a comb, so beautifully adapted to its end, without enthusiastic admiration. We hear from mathematicians that bees have practically solved a recondite problem, and have made their cells of the proper shape to hold the greatest possible amount of honey with the least possible consumption of precious wax in their construction. It has been remarked that a skillful workman, with fitting tools and measures, would find it very difficult to make cells of wax of the true form, though this is effected by a crowd of bees working in a dark hive. Granting whatever instincts you please, it seems at first quite inconceivable how they can make all the necessary angles and planes, or even perceive when they are correctly made. But the difficulty is not nearly so great as it first appears. All this beautiful work can be shown, I think, to follow from a few simple instincts. I was led to investigate this subject by Mr. Waterhouse, who has shown that the form of the cells stands in close relation to the presence of adjoining cells, and the following view may, perhaps, be considered only as a modification of his theory. Let us look to the great principle of gradation, and see whether nature does not reveal to us her method of work. At one end of a short series we have humblebees, which use their old cocoons to hold honey, sometimes adding to them short tubes of wax and likewise making separate and very irregular rounded cells of wax. At the other end of the series we have the cells of the hive bee, placed in a double layer. Each cell, as is well known, is an hexagonal prism, with the basal edges of its six sides beveled so as to join an inverted pyramid of three roms. These roms have certain angles, and the three which form the pyramidal base of a single cell on one side of the comb enter into the composition of the bases of three adjoining cells on the opposite side. In the series, between the extreme perfection of the cells of the hive bee and the simplicity of those of the humble bee, we have the cells of the Mexican Melipona domestica, carefully described and figured by Pierre Hubert. The Melipona itself is intermediate in structure between the hive and humble bee, but more nearly related to the latter. It forms a nearly regular waxen comb of cylindrical cells, in which the young are hatched, and, in addition, some large cells of wax for holding honey. These latter cells are nearly spherical, 
and of nearly equal sizes, and are aggregated into an irregular mass. But the important point to notice is that these cells are always made at that degree of nearness to each other, that they would have intersected or broken into each other if the spheres had been completed. But this is never permitted, the bees building perfectly flat walls of wax between the spheres which thus tend to intersect. Hence, each cell consists of an outer spherical portion, and of two, three, or more flat surfaces, according as the cell adjoins two, three, or more other cells. When one cell rests in three other cells, which, from the spheres, being nearly of the same size, is very frequently and necessarily the case, the three flat surfaces are united into a pyramid, and this pyramid, as Hubert has remarked, is manifestly a gross imitation of the three-sided pyramidal base of the cell of the hive bee. As in the cells of the hive bee, so here the three plane surfaces in any one cell necessarily enter into the construction of three adjoining cells. It is obvious that the melipona saves wax, and what is more important, labor, by this manner of building. For the flat walls between the adjoining cells are not double, but are of the same thickness as the outer spherical portions, and yet each flat portion forms a part of two cells. Reflecting on this case, it occurred to me that if the melipona had made its spheres at some given distance from each other, and had made them of equal sizes, and had arranged them symmetrically in a double layer, the resulting structure would have been as perfect as the comb of the hive bee. Accordingly, I wrote to Professor Miller of Cambridge, and this geometer has kindly read over the following statement drawn up from his information, and tells me that it is strictly correct. If a number of equal spheres be described with their centers placed in two parallel layers, with the center of each sphere at the distance of radius times square root 2, or radius times 1.41421, or at some lesser distance, from the centers of the six surrounding spheres in the same layer, and at the same distance from the centers of the adjoining spheres in the other and parallel layer, then, if planes of intersection between the several spheres in both layers be formed, there will be result a double layer of hexagonal prisms united together by pyramidal bases formed of three ROMs, and the ROMs and the sides of the hexagonal prisms will have every angle identically the same with the best measurements which have been made of the cells of the hive bee. But I hear from Professor Wyman, who has made numerous careful measurements, that the accuracy of the workmanship of the bee has been greatly exaggerated, so much so that whatever the typical form of the cells may be, it is rarely, if ever, realized. Hence, we may safely conclude that, if we could slightly modify the instincts already possessed by the melipona, and in themselves not very wonderful, this bee would make a structure as wonderfully perfect as that of the hive bee. We must suppose the melipona to have the power of forming her cells truly spherical, and of equal sizes, and this would not be very surprising, seeing that she already does so to a certain extent, and seeing what perfectly cylindrical burrows many insects make in wood, apparently by turning around on a fixed point. We must suppose the melipona to arrange her cells in level layers, as she already does her cylindrical cells, and we must further suppose, and this is the greatest difficulty, that she can somehow judge accurately at what distance to stand from her fellow laborers when several are making their spheres. But she is already so far enabled to judge of a distance, that she always describes her spheres so as to intersect to a certain extent, and then she unites the points of intersection by perfectly flat surfaces. 
by such modifications of instincts which in themselves are not very wonderful, hardly more wonderful than those which guide a bird to make its nest. I believe that the hive-bee has acquired through natural selection her inimitable architectural powers. But this theory can be tested by experiment. Following the example of Mr. Tegetmeyer, I separated two combs and put between them a long, thick, rectangular strip of wax. The bees instantly began to excavate minute circular pits in it, and as they deepened these little pits, they made them wider and wider until they were converted into shallow basins, appearing to the eye perfectly true or parts of a sphere, and of about the diameter of a cell. It was most interesting to observe that, wherever several bees had begun to excavate their basins near together, they had begun their work at such a distance from each other that by the time the basins had acquired the above stated width, i.e. about the width of an ordinary cell, and were in depth about one-sixth of the diameter of the sphere of which they formed a part, the rims of the basins intersected or broke into each other. As soon as this occurred, the bees ceased to excavate, and began to build up flat walls of wax on the lines of intersection between the basins, so that each hexagonal prism was built upon the scalloped edge of a smooth basin, instead on the straight edges of a three-sided pyramid as in the case of ordinary cells. I then put into the hive, instead of a thick rectangular piece of wax, a thin and narrow knife-edged ridge, colored with vermilion. The bees instantly began on both sides to excavate little basins near to each other, in the same way as before. But the ridge of wax was so thin that the bottoms of the basins, if they had been excavated to the same depth as the former experiment, would have broken into each other from the opposite sides. The bees, however, did not suffer this to happen, and they stopped their excavations in due time, so that the basins, as soon as they had been a little deepened, came to have flat bases. And these flat bases, formed by thin little plates of the vermilion wax left unnawed, were situated, as far as the eye could judge, exactly along the planes of imaginary intersection between the basins on the opposite side of the ridge of wax. In some parts, only small portions, in other parts, large portions of a rhombic plate were thus left between the opposed basins, but the work from the unnatural state of things had not been neatly performed. The bees must have worked at very nearly the same rate in circularly gnawing away and deepening the basins on both sides of the ridge of vermilion wax, in order to have thus succeeded in leaving flat plates between the basins, by stopping work at the planes of intersection. Considering how flexible thin wax is, I do not see that there is any difficulty in the bees, whilst at work on the two sides of a strip of wax, perceiving when they have gnawed the wax away to the proper thinness, and then stopping their work. In ordinary combs, it has appeared to me that the bees do not always succeed in working at exactly the same rate from the opposite sides, for I have noticed half-completed roms at the base of a just-commenced cell, which were slightly concave on one side, where I suppose that the bees had excavated too quickly, and convex on the opposed side where the bees had worked less quickly. In one well-marked instance, I put the comb back into the hive and allowed the bees to go on working for a short time and again examined the cell, and I found that the rhombic plate had been completed and had become perfectly flat. It was absolutely impossible, from the extreme thinness of the little plate, that they could have effected this by gnawing away the convex side, and I suspect that the bees in such cases stand in the opposed cells and push and bend the ductile and warm wax, which as I have tried is easily done, 
into its proper intermediate plane and thus flatten it. From the experiment of the ridge of vermilion wax we can see that, if the bees were to build for themselves a thin wall of wax, they could make their cells of the proper shape by standing at the proper distance from each other by excavating at the same rate and by endeavoring to make equal spherical hollows, but never allowing the spheres to break into each other. Now bees, as may be clearly seen by examining the edge of a growing comb, do make a rough circumferential wall or rim all around the comb, and they gnaw this away from the opposite sides, always working circularly as they deepen each cell. They do not make the whole three-sided pyramidal base of any one cell at the same time, but only that of one rhombic plate which stands on the extreme growing margin, or the two plates as the case may be. And they never complete the upper edges of the rhombic plates until the hexagonal walls are commenced. Some of these statements differ from those made by the justly celebrated elder Hubert, but I am convinced of their accuracy, and if I had space I could show that they are conformable with my theory. Hubert's statement, that the very first cell is excavated out of a little parallel-sided wall of wax, is not, as far as I have seen, strictly correct, the first commencement having always been a little hood of wax. But I will not here enter on details. We see how important a part excavation plays in the construction of the cells, but it would be a great error to suppose that the bees cannot build up a rough wall of wax in the proper position, that is, along the plane of intersection between two adjoining spheres. I have several specimens showing clearly that they can do this. Even in the rude circumferential rim or wall of wax around a growing comb, flexures may be sometimes be observed corresponding in position to the planes of the rhombic basal plates of future cells. But the rough wall of wax has in every case to be finished off by being largely gnawed away on both sides. The manner in which the bees build is curious. They always make the first rough wall from ten to twenty times thicker than the excessively thin, finished wall of the cell, which will ultimately be left. We shall understand how they work by supposing masons first to pile up a broad ridge of cement, and then to begin cutting it away equally on both sides near the ground till the smooth, very thin wall is left in the middle. The masons always piling up the cutaway cement and adding fresh cement on the summit of the ridge. We shall thus have a thin wall steadily growing upward but always crowned by a gigantic coping. From all the cells, both those just commenced and those completed, being thus crowned by a strong coping of wax, the bees can cluster and crawl over the comb without injuring the delicate hexagonal walls. These walls, as Professor Miller has kindly ascertained for me, vary greatly in thickness, being on average of twelve measurements made near the border of the comb, one three hundred and fifty second of an inch in thickness, whereas the basal rhomboidal plates are thicker, nearly in the proportion of three to two, having a mean thickness from twenty-one measurements of one two hundred and twenty-ninth of an inch. By the above singular manner of building, strength is continually given to the comb with the utmost ultimate economy of wax. It seems at first to add to the difficulty of understanding how the cells are made that a multitude of beads all work together, one bee after working a short time at one cell going to another, so that, as Hubert has stated, a score of individuals work even at the commencements of the first cell. I was able practically to show this fact by covering the edges of the hexagonal walls of a single cell, or the extreme margin of the circumferential rim of a growing comb, 
with an extremely thin layer of melted vermilion wax. And I invariably found that the color was most delicately diffused by the bees, as delicately as a painter could have done it with his brush, by atoms of the colored wax having been taken from the spot on which it had been placed, and worked in the growing edges of the cells all round. The work of construction seems to be a sort of balance struck between many bees, all instinctively standing at the same relative distance from each other, all trying to sweep equal spheres, and then building up or leaving unnawed the planes of intersection between these spheres. It was really curious to note in cases of difficulty, as when two pieces of comb met at an angle, how often these bees would pull down and rebuild in different ways the same cell, sometimes recurring to a shape which they had at first rejected. When bees have a place on which they can stand in their proper positions for working, for instance on a slip of wood, placed directly under the middle of a comb growing downwards, so that the comb has to be built over one face of the slip, in this case the bees can lay the foundations of one wall of a new hexagon, in its strictly proper place, projecting beyond the other completed cells. It suffices that the bees should be enabled to stand at their proper relative distances from each other and from the walls of the last completed cell, and then, by striking imaginary spheres, they can build up a wall intermediate between two adjoining spheres. But, as far as I have seen, they never gnaw away and finish off the angles of a cell till a large part both of that cell and of the adjoining cells has been built. This capacity in bees of laying down under certain circumstances a rough wall in its proper place between two just commenced cells is important as it bears on a fact which seems at first subversive of the foregoing theory, namely that the cells on the extreme margin of wasp combs are sometimes strictly hexagonal, but I have not space here to enter on this subject, nor does there seem to me any great difficulty in a single insect, as in the case of a queen wasp making hexagonal cells if she were to work alternately on the inside and outside of two or three cells commenced at the same time, always standing at the proper relative distance from the parts of the cells just begun, sweeping spheres or cylinders, and building up intermediate planes. As natural selection acts only by the accumulation of slight modifications of structure or instinct, each profitable to the individual under its conditions of life, it may reasonably be asked how a long and graduated succession of modified architectural instincts, all tending towards the present perfect plan of construction, could have profited the progenitors of the hive bee? I think the answer is not difficult. Cells constructed like those of the bee or of the wasp gain in strength, and save much in labor and space, and in the materials of which they are constructed. With respect to the formation of wax, it is known that the bees are often hard-pressed to get sufficient nectar, and I am informed by Mr. Tegetmeyer that it has been experimentally proved that from 12 to 15 pounds of a dry sugar are consumed by a hive of bees for the secretion of a pound of wax, so that a prodigious quantity of fluid nectar must be collected and consumed by the bees in a hive for the secretion of the wax necessary for the construction of their combs. Moreover, Many bees have to remain idle for many days during the process of secretion. A large store of honey is indispensable to support a large stock of bees during the winter, and the security of the hive is known mainly to depend on a large number of bees being supported. Hence the saving of wax by largely saving honey, and the time consumed in collecting the honey, must be an important element of success any family of bees. 
Of course, the success of the species may be dependent on the number of its enemies, or parasites, or on quite distinct causes, and so be altogether independent of the quantity of honey which the bees can collect. But let us suppose that this latter circumstance determined, as it probably often has determined, whether a bee allied to our humble bees could exist in large numbers in any country. And let us further suppose that the community lived through the winter, and consequently required a store of honey. There can in this case be no doubt that it would be an advantage to our imaginary humble bee if a slight modification of her instincts led her to make her waxen cells near together so as to intersect a little. For a wall in common even to two adjoining cells would save some little labor and wax. Hence, it would continually be more and more advantageous to our humble bees if they were to make the cells more and more regular, nearer together, and aggregated into a mass like the cells of the melipona. For in this case a large part of the bounding surface of each cell would serve to bound the adjoining cells, and much labor and wax would be saved. Again from the same cause, it would be advantageous to the melipona if she were to make her cells closer together, and more regular in every way than at present. For then, as we have seen, the spherical surfaces would wholly disappear, and be replaced by plane surfaces, and the melipona would make a comb as perfect as that of the hive bee. Beyond this stage of perfection in architecture, natural selection could not lead, for the comb of the hive bee, as far as we can see, is absolutely perfect in economizing labor and wax. Thus, as I believe, the most wonderful of all known instincts, that of the hive bee, can be explained by natural selection having taken advantage of numerous, successive, slight modifications of simpler instincts. Natural selection having, by slow degrees, more and more perfectly led to the bees to sweep equal spheres at a given distance from each other in a double layer, and to build up and excavate the wax along the planes of intersection. The bees, of course, no more knowing that they swept their spheres at one particular distance from each other than they know what are the several angles of the hexagonal prisms and of the basal rhombic plates. The motive power of the process of natural selection having been the construction of cells of due strength and of the proper size and shape for the larvae, thus being affected with the greatest possible economy of labor and wax. That individual swarm which thus made the best cells with least labor and least waste of honey in the secretion of wax, having succeeded best, and having transmitted their newly acquired economical instincts to new swarms, which, in their turn, will have had the best chance of succeeding in the struggle for existence. End of chapter 8, part 2 the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life, 6th London Edition, by Charles Darwin, Chapter Number 8. Instinct. Part 3. Objections to the Theory of Natural Selection as Applied to Instincts, Neuter and Sterile Insects. It has been objected to the foregoing view of the origin of instincts that, quote, the variations of structure and of instinct must have been simultaneous and accurately adjusted to each other, as a modification in the one without an immediate corresponding change in the other would have been fatal. End quote. The force of this objection rests entirely on the assumption that the changes in the instincts and structure are abrupt. To take as an illustration the case of the larger titmouse, Parus major, alluded to in a previous chapter, 
This bird often holds the seeds of the yew between its feet on a branch, and hammers with its beak till it gets at the kernel. Now what special difficulty would there be in natural selection, preserving all the slight individual variations in the shape of the beak, which were better and better adapted to break open the seeds, until a beak was formed as well constructed for this purpose as that of the nuthatch, at the same time that habit or compulsion or spontaneous variations of taste led the bird to become more and more of a seed-eater. In this case the beak is supposed to be slowly modified by natural selection, subsequently to, but in accordance with, slowly changing habits or taste. But let the feet of the titmouse vary and grow larger from correlation with the beak, or from any other unknown cause, and it is not improbable that such larger feet would lead the bird to climb more and more until it acquired the remarkable climbing instinct and power of the nuthatch. In this case, a gradual change of structure is supposed to lead to changed instinctive habits. To take one more case, few instincts are more remarkable than that which leads the swift of the eastern islands to make its nest wholly of inspissated saliva. Some birds build their nests of mud, believed to be moistened with saliva, and one of the swifts of North America makes its nest, as I have seen, of sticks agglutinated with saliva, and even with flakes of this substance. Is it then very improbable that the natural selection of individual swifts, which secreted more and more saliva, should at last produce a species with instincts, leading it to neglect other materials, and to make its nest exclusively of inspissated saliva? and so in other cases. It must, however, be admitted that in many instances we cannot conjecture whether it was instinct or structure which first varied. No doubt many instincts of very difficult explanation could be opposed to the theory of natural selection, cases in which we cannot see how an instinct could have originated, cases in which no intermediate gradations are known to exist, cases of instincts of such trifling importance that they could hardly have been acted on by natural selection, cases of instincts almost identically the same in animals so remote in the scale of nature that we cannot account for their similarity by inheritance from a common progenitor, and consequently must believe that they were independently acquired through natural selection. I will not here enter on these several cases, but will confine myself to one special difficulty, which at first appeared to me insuperable and actually fatal to the whole theory. I allude to the neuters or sterile females in insect communities, for these neuters often differ widely in instinct and in structure from both the males and fertile females, and yet, from being sterile, they cannot propagate their kind. The subject well deserves to be discussed at great length, but I will here take only a single case, that of working or sterile ants. How the workers have been rendered sterile is a difficulty, but not much greater than that of any other striking modification of structure, for it can be shown that some insects and other articulate animals in a state of nature occasionally become sterile, and if such insects had been social, and it had been profitable to the community that a number should have been annually born capable of work, but incapable of procreation, I can see no especial difficulty in this having been effected through natural selection. But I must pass over this preliminary difficulty. The great difficulty lies in the working ants differing widely from both the males and the fertile females in structure, as in the shapes of the thorax, and in being destitute of wings and sometimes of eyes. 
and in instinct. As far as instinct alone is concerned, the wonderful difference in this respect between the workers and the perfect females would have been better exemplified by the hive bee. If a working ant or other neuter insect had been an ordinary animal, I should have unhesitatingly assumed that all its characters had been slowly acquired through natural selection, namely by individuals having been born with slight profitable modifications which were inherited by the offspring, and that these again varied and again were selected, and so onwards. But with the working ant we have an insect differing greatly from its parents, yet absolutely sterile so that it could never have transmitted successively acquired modifications of structure or instinct to its progeny. It may well be asked how it is possible to reconcile this case with the theory of natural selection. First, let it be remembered that we have innumerable instances both in our domestic productions and in those in a state of nature of all sorts of differences of inherited structure which are correlated with certain ages and with either sex. We have differences correlated not only with one sex, but with that short period when the reproductive system is active, as in the nuptial plumage of many birds, and in the hooked jaws of the male salmon. We have even slight differences in the horns of different breeds of cattle in relation to an artificially imperfect state of the male sex, for oxen of certain breeds have longer horns than the oxen of other breeds relatively to the length of the horns in both the bulls and cows of these same breeds. Hence I can see no great difficulty in any character becoming correlated with the sterile condition of certain members of insect communities. The difficulty lies in understanding how such correlated modifications of structure could have been slowly accumulated by natural selection. This difficulty, though appearing insuperable, is lessened, or, as I believe, disappears, when it is remembered that selection may be applied to the family as well as to the individual, and may thus gain the desired end. Breeders of cattle wish the flesh and fat to be well marbled together, an animal thus characterized has been slaughtered, but the breeder has gone with confidence to the same stock and has succeeded. Such faith may be placed in the power of selection that a breed of cattle, always yielding oxen with extraordinarily long horns, could, it is probable, be formed by carefully watching which individual bulls and cows, when matched, produce oxen with the longest horns, and yet no one ox would ever have propagated its kind. Here is a better and real illustration. According to M. Verlot, some varieties of the double annual stock, from having been long and carefully selected to the right degree, always produce a large proportion of seedlings bearing double and quite sterile flowers, but they likewise yield some single and fertile plants. These latter, by which alone the variety can be propagated, may be compared with the fertile male and female ants and the double sterile plants with the neuters of the same community. As with the varieties of the stock, so with social insects, selection has been applied to the family and not to the individual for the sake of gaining a serviceable end. Hence we may conclude that slight modifications of structure or of instinct, correlated with the sterile condition of certain members of the community, have proved advantageous. Consequently, the fertile males and females have flourished and transmitted to their fertile offspring a tendency to produce sterile members with the same modifications. This process must have been repeated many times until that prodigious amount of difference between the fertile and sterile females of the same species has been produced which we see in many social insects. 
but we have not as yet touched on the acme of the difficulty, namely the fact that the neuters of several ants differ not only from the fertile females and males, but from each other, sometimes to an almost incredible degree, and are thus divided into two or even three castes. The castes, moreover, do not generally graduate into each other, but are perfectly well defined, being as distinct from each other as are any two species of the same genus, or rather as any two genera of the same family. Thus in Eseton there are working and soldier neuters with jaws and instincts extraordinarily different. In Cryptoceros, the workers of one caste alone carry a wonderful sort of shield on their heads, the use of which is quite unknown. In the Mexican Myrmecocystis, the workers of one caste never leave the nest, they are fed by the workers of another caste, and they have an enormously developed abdomen which secretes a sort of honey, supplying the place of that excreted by the aphides, or the domestic cattle as they may be called, which our European ants guard and imprison. It will indeed be thought that I have an overweening confidence in the principle of natural selection, when I do not admit that such wonderful and well-established facts at once annihilate the theory. In the simpler case of neuter insects all of one caste, which, as I believe, have been rendered different from the fertile males and females through natural selection, we may conclude from the analogy of ordinary variations that the successive slight profitable modifications did not first arise in all the neuters in the same nest, but in some few alone, and that by the survival of the communities with females which produced most neuters having the advantageous modification, all the neuters ultimately came to be thus characterized. According to this view, we ought occasionally to find in the same nest neuter insects presenting gradations of structure, and this we do find, even not rarely, considering how few neuter insects out of Europe have been carefully examined. Mr. F. Smith has shown that the neuters of several British ants differ surprisingly from each other in size and sometimes in color, and that the extreme forms can be linked together by individuals taken out of the same nest. I have myself compared perfect gradations of this kind. It sometimes happens that the larger or the smaller-sized workers are the most numerous, or that both large and small are numerous, while those of an intermediate size are scanty in numbers. Formica flava has larger and smaller workers with some few of intermediate size, and in this species, as Mr. F. Smith has observed, the larger workers have simple eyes, ocelli, which, though small, can be plainly distinguished, whereas the smaller workers have their ocelli rudimentary. Having carefully dissected several specimens of these workers, I can affirm that the eyes are far more rudimentary in the smaller workers than can be accounted for merely by their proportionately lesser size, and I fully believe, though I dare not assert so positively, that the workers of intermediate size have their ocelli in an exactly intermediate condition. So that here we have two bodies of sterile workers in the same nest, differing not only in size, but in their organs of vision, yet connected by some few members in an intermediate condition. I may digress by adding that if the smaller workers had been the most useful to the community, and those males and females had been continually selected, which produced more and more of the smaller workers, until all the workers were in this condition, we should then have had a species of ant with neuters in nearly the same condition as those of Myrmica. For the workers of Myrmica have not even rudiments of ocelli, though the male and female ants of this genus have well-developed ocelli. 
I may give one other case. So confidently did I expect occasionally to find gradations of important structures between the different castes of neuters in the same species that I gladly availed myself of Mr. F. Smith's offer of numerous specimens from the same nest of the driver ant, Anoma, of West Africa. The reader will perhaps best appreciate the amount of difference in these workers by my giving not the actual measurements but a strictly accurate illustration. The difference was the same as if we were to see a set of workmen building a house, of whom many were five feet four inches high, and many sixteen feet high. And we must in addition suppose that the larger workmen had heads four instead of three times as big as those of the smaller men, and jaws nearly five times as big. The jaws, moreover, of the working ants of the several sizes differed wonderfully in shape and in the form and number of the teeth. But the important fact for us is that, though the workers can be grouped into castes of different sizes, yet they graduate insensibly into each other, as does the widely different structure of their jaws. I speak confidently on this latter point, as Sir J. Lubbock made drawings for me with the camera lucida of the jaws which I dissected from the workers of the several sizes. Mr. Bates, in his interesting Naturalist on the Amazons, has described analogous cases. With these facts before me, I believe that natural selection, by acting on the fertile ants or parents, could form a species which should regularly produce neuters, all of large size with one form of jaw, or all of small size with widely different jaws. Or lastly, and this is the greatest difficulty, one set of workers of one size and structure, and simultaneously another set of workers of a different size and structure, a graduated series having first been formed, as in the case of the driver ant, and then the extreme forms having been produced in greater and greater numbers through the survival of the parents which generated them, until none of the intermediate structure were produced. An analogous explanation has been given by Mr. Wallace, of the equally complex case of certain Malayan butterflies regularly appearing under two or even three distinct female forms, and by Fritz Müller, of certain Brazilian crustaceans likewise appearing under two widely distinct male forms. But this subject need not here be discussed. I have now explained how, I believe, the wonderful fact of two distinctly defined castes of sterile workers existing in the same nest both widely different from each other and from their parents, has originated. We can see how useful their production may have been to a social community of ants, on the same principle that the division of labor is useful to civilized man. Ants, however, work by inherited instincts and by inherited organs or tools, while man works by acquired knowledge and manufactured instruments. But I must confess that with all my faith in natural selection, I should never have anticipated that this principle could have been efficient in so high a degree had not the case of these neuter insects led me to this conclusion. I have therefore discussed this case at some little but wholly insufficient length in order to show the power of natural selection and likewise because this is by far the most serious special difficulty which my theory has encountered. The case also is very interesting as it proves that with animals as with plants any amount of modification may be effected by the accumulation of numerous, slight, spontaneous variations, 
which are in any way profitable, without exercise or habit having been brought into play. For peculiar habits confined to the workers of sterile females, however long they might be followed, could not possibly affect the males and fertile females, which alone leave descendants. I am surprised that no one has advanced this demonstrative case of neuter insects against the well-known doctrine of inherited habit as advanced by Lamarck. Summary I have endeavored in this chapter briefly to show that the mental qualities of our domestic animals vary, and that the variations are inherited. Still more briefly, I have attempted to show that instincts vary slightly in a state of nature. No one will dispute that instincts are of the highest importance to each animal. Therefore, there is no real difficulty, under changing conditions of life, in natural selection accumulating to any extent slight modifications of instinct which are in any way useful. In many cases, habit or use and disuse have probably come into play. I do not pretend that the facts given in this chapter strengthen in any great degree my theory, but none of the cases of difficulty, to the best of my judgment, annihilate it. On the other hand, the fact that instincts are not always absolutely perfect and are liable to mistakes, that no instinct can be shown to have been produced for the good of other animals, though animals take advantage of the instincts of others, that the canon in natural history of natura non facit saltum is applicable to instincts as well as to corporeal structure, and is plainly explicable on the foregoing views, but is otherwise inexplicable, all tend to corroborate the theory of natural selection. This theory is also strengthened by some few other facts in regard to instincts. As by that common case of closely allied but distinct species, when inhabiting distant parts of the world and living under considerably different conditions of life, yet often retaining nearly the same instincts. For instance, we can understand on the principle of inheritance how it is that the thrush of tropical South America lines its nest with mud in the same peculiar manner as does our British thrush, how it is that the hornbills of Africa and India have the same extraordinary instinct of plastering up and imprisoning the females in a hole in a tree, with only a small hole left in the plaster through which the males feed them and their young when hatched, how it is that the male wrens, troglodytes of North America, build cock-nests to roost in like the males of our kitty-wrens, a habit wholly unlike that of any other known bird. Finally, it may not be a logical deduction, but to my imagination it is far more satisfactory to look at such instincts as the young cuckoo ejecting its foster-brothers, ants making slaves, the larvae of ichneumonidae feeding within the live bodies of caterpillars, not as specially endowed or created instincts but as small consequences of one general law leading to the advancement of all organic beings, namely, multiply, vary, let the strongest live, and the weakest die. End of chapter 8